Hello and welcome to the Joshua Greeny podcast. We have a returning guest for this uh, this session, and it is Tim. You may remember him from the uh, the last one we discussed, which was uh, the, a biblical response to victim blaming. So there's a lot of different topics that uh, the Tim has put forward. Uh, some that that have been questions I've asked, and we're going to see if we can work through at least a few of them, uh, hopefully, and maybe tie them in together. So, Tim, thank you for joining us again for the for the podcast. Hey, Josh. Yeah, uh, thanks for having me on. Uh, it's uh, always fun. <clears throat> it was fun last time talking to you, and uh, I think I'll enjoy it again this time too. Yeah, that hopefully, hopefully it'll be good for anybody who listens in as well. So I know it was uh, enjoyable for me, and we'll see. We'll see how many of these we can we can uh, uh, at least mention. I'm sure they'll come up again. But so I talked with Tim yeah. before the the podcast uh, and just kind of ran through some of the, the various questions and things that he kept putting forward that I were stacking up and decided, all right, we're going to go ahead and try and knock some of these out. So the first one, and this is one that I've been wrestling with just on my own you're here and there is the concept of following your heart and the way that tim had put it forward was is the concept of following your heart truly 100 percent unbiblical because that's you know that's an a common critique you know we see that in like disney films and things talking about follow your heart and that's almost like the solution to you know if you're struggling to make a decision and you don't know what the right decision is well at the end of the day if you just follow your heart then you're going to be on the right path and typically, uh, the Christian response is to object to that and to say, "Hold on a second, you know that that's that might not be biblical." And there's usually a verse that's quoted. Uh, just out of curiosity, Tim, do you know what verse I'm thinking of? <laughs> um, I think it's uh, the verse about um, your heart being deceitful and uh, desperately wicked, and uh, who can know it? Yes, yeah, that's the exact one. I'm, I'm going to pull that up because it's in. Uh, that's the first verse that I thought of with regard to that, because that's usually the objection. Yeah. And it's in, let's see here. I'm gonna, I'll put it in the English Standard Version. So I'll read that, and then we'll kind of, we can jump from there. But it's in uh, Jeremiah uh, chapter 17, verse 9, and it says, The heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately sick, or in some versions, desperately wicked, who can know it? And in the ESV, it says, who can understand it? Um, yeah. And then well, I'll read the, the next verse. Verse 10 says, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. So I guess the first question I have with that is, and this is this is an open-ended question because I'm, I'm still wrestling with it, is what exactly is meant by the term the heart? Yeah. I think that's um, the, the crux of it. So, yeah, go ahead. What are your thoughts on it so far? We'll, yeah. we'll dive from there. Well, I mean, like you mentioned, uh, you know, of course, the it's something that the heart is mentioned by the culture a lot, uh, saying that you know we're that you're supposed to follow it. Um, and uh, <clears throat> I, I don't know if, like, saying in defining, it, I'm not sure if if the the world's concept of what it, what they mean by heart, you know, when I say follow your heart, is really the same thing that when when Christians think of you know the heart uh, because um, from what I gather when, when like the world talks about following your heart and you know it's usually in the context of say um, you know living a dream or um, choosing a spouse uh, you know usually in the in the movie or, or whatever you're, you're the book you're reading kind of thing like that's when the people uh, will mention that 
And in that in that regard, I would say that it sounds more like they're talking about the concept of um, like your feelings, like they, like what your heart tells you. Uh, that's how they they put it. But what they would but what they would probably mean is more uh, like what your feelings tell you. You know, like mm-hmm. like go off of what what is the most pleasurable experience. You know, what's the most uh, um, I don't know appetizing uh, and enticing you know thing. And you should go for that. <clears throat> so if you have two people that you're in a love triangle with, you should go with the one that, that makes you feel the best or makes you feel, you know, um, just, just like completes you, uh, on, on a feelings level or something, you know, um, is it, that's how high I think they would be saying that, um, which, uh, in that regard, I think is correct then for Christians to, to criticize because, our hearts, uh, in that way, the, the it is applicable to say that our hearts are, are you know, not not wise because it's um, we just the, the things that make us feel good are not always the best for us, uh, mm-hmm. you know, as we've proven out with with you know junk food, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> for an exactly. easy example, you know, uh, it might taste good, but you know, too much of it is a bad thing. So, well, and see, and um, that that's a so that's a, a good point. Um, because I think I agree with you entirely with the the way that the let's say a Disney film or just films in general when they use that idea of hey just follow your heart, um, it, it's more of like yeah the emotions or the pull it's something as, that's aside from your mind and what you're thinking it's almost like a yeah. it's like a trump card of like look I get you're thinking this and all of that maybe you're overthinking. Let's go with something that's more, you know, fundamental, maybe more trustworthy. And so then they say you'll follow your heart, which has more of like the emotions. Yeah. Might even have an idea of like, you know, follow your gut. You know, what's your gut telling you? There's almost a sense sure. that there's it's kind of like that. But the the thing that um that I found so, in other words, we could object to that and say, "Hey, that's not good. You know, we're not supposed to do that." Yeah. But the question I've wondered about is the verse that's often used, which is the one, the Jeremiah seventeen nine about the heart being deceitful above all things. It's like, okay, the first, the first objection that I potentially have to, to that verse being used is, uh, is the, is the term heart as it's being used in Jeremiah seventeen nine? Is that the same type of, like, is, is that, is the same definition behind that word in Jeremiah seventeen nine as it is in our culture? Because you know, a lot of times yeah. we'll we'll refer to you know, we have these terms, but it's what's the word? It's like an, a false equivalency or equivocation. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you know, where people don't have the exact same idea behind it. I mean, even the concept of um, I, I think I remember when I was so when I was in South Korea, I was trying to explain. Uh, the idea of the mind versus the heart from a, and I was explaining from American context because I was talking with the, an adult class about this. Um, and, and I had said, I go, where's your mind? And they kind of pointed to their chest region to like their heart. And they're like, yeah, that's in my mind. I was like, well, I said that might be, you know, again, that, that gets into the, the terminology we're using, how it's understood and, and translation and all yeah. of that. But I was like in the, in at least American context, we think of, the mind as being something that's, you know, approximating uh, uh, your brain, or it's at least connected to your brain, so your head. Uh, whereas your heart is yeah. something that's more of like tied to your emotions, and it's in your chest, you know, where your physical heart that beats is. So, 
But the question I've wondered is, what does it mean when it says the heart is deceitful above all things? And then the other question I have is, is this talking about somebody who is, you know, in a fallen state? In other words, they haven't been redeemed. Yeah. They're not a Christian. And so basically the, the fallen state of man is, is a man whose heart, whatever that is, is deceitful above all things. In other words, is it possible to have a heart? Well, okay, so here's the, here's the actual question. And I looked this up. And in Ezekiel 36, verse 26, um, you have Ezekiel saying, And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a, a heart of flesh. And so... Yeah. So and, and again, the same question could be, okay, is that the same term, heart? Is it being used the same way, or am I equivocating there? Like, I feel like it's a... In yeah. other words, it's a more complicated question <laughs> yeah well and, and uh <clears throat> i was kind of looking up different verses that use the word mention the word heart uh and there's also jeremiah 24 7 <clears throat> which says i'll give i'll give them a new heart to know me or a heart to know me i'm sorry uh that i am the lord and they shall be my people and i will be their god for they shall return unto me with their whole heart um and you know there it, it kind of again talks about him you know changing our heart uh, so, um, it's, it's something where like you're saying, I mean, if, if, if that verse in Jeremiah is just saying that we're, uh, that in general, the heart is, is a, a, a desperately wicked thing that, you know, usually goes for our flesh first, you know, and, and, and promotes, uh, what, what is, you know, maybe not, not spiritually best for us, but what is, what physically we want kind of thing. Then I would agree with that, uh, but it, like if if I don't know, it's if you if you just you know claim that the whole follow your heart idea is kind of um, unbiblical, then you know what about like say after after you you've been saved or after you've been changed, are are you still should you still not follow your heart? Does that mean that like we still have a heart that that would you know take us back to say the old man? Uh, in us, and then we still can't trust it. Mm-hmm. Or if if God is, or if God's given us something new, you know, can we trust the desires now? Because um, it, you know, is it is it more? Is the should the question more be what is your desire versus you know um, <clears throat> versus what um, whether just you know you're following your desires is right or wrong? Like maybe that's not really the the uh, conflict. Because of course, a lot of us also say, you know, trust more with all your heart uh, and leave not not to your own understanding. That was another um, one I was going to bring up. Yeah, uh, Proverbs three yeah. five through six. Yeah, and well, and and two um, where it says, I'm sorry, I can't remember uh, the probably that quotation, but uh, where it says that, um, or well, maybe that's the same verse. I can't remember um, where it also says that we will, it will give you the desires of your heart. That was the next I one I was going to bring up. So that's Psalm 37, verse 4. I just looked it up. Delight yourself in the Lord, yeah. and he will give you the <clears throat> desires of your heart. Yeah. And and that doesn't really if, – if if we shouldn't trust the desires of our heart, then what, what does that verse mean? You know, because uh, if we just say don't follow your heart, then apparently God's going to give us what we don't – what we shouldn't have or, you know, what, like what is that trying to say? Yeah, does he so, give us a deceitful heart that has desires that are aimed against him? And you know, what does that mean then? <laughs> yeah, you know, and uh, but you say if we're delighting ourselves in him, then we must be doing something right. 
So like he he wouldn't reward our good behavior with let a guest like get away with bad things. Uh, <clears throat> so you know, it, like I say, it's a conflict not so much where we're disagreeing with. Uh, is it not so so black and white about like just don't trust your heart as much as just don't trust the bad desires? You know, just just be careful that you're not desiring the wrong thing because uh, you know, like like that verse about uh, giving you the desires of your heart is something that is easily mis uh, misapplied by people when they want to uh, talk about say like you know a prosperity gospel or something and they want to say that that God's going to bless me with anything and, and say see right there you know if you just do what God if you just like God then He'll just give you anything you want. So I'm just going to wish for a Lamborghini and I'll get that next week because, you know, God would give that to me because that's my desire. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think that's a terrible way of, you know, interpreting that, of course, that like he's not supposed, we're not supposed to just wish for, for, you know, personal gain type stuff. Uh, but, uh, you know, but at the same time, what if, what if you say like, you know, Solomon, he, he was given the opportunity to ask for something and he asked for wisdom and God blessed him for that. Uh, you know, was that, that was a, was that a desire of his heart? You know, was it a bad thing? Um, apparently God didn't think so, you know? So, mm-hmm. uh, it's just, it's like I say, it's, it's been frustrating because <clears throat> I know it's something that, that people want to have a black and white on. We want to make it easy and just kind of cut and dried and say that, you know, you just shouldn't trust your heart. Don't go with that. You know, it's a bad idea. Um, and, and again, like I say, in the context of the, um, the world's understanding of it, I think people are correct, but then you have to look at it from a biblical perspective and say, well, what about, you know, all this, I don't know, seemingly like middle ground questions, you know, the, the, the areas in, in between where we can't really define it so simply as to say that, you know, it's just, if your heart wants it, it must be a bad thing. Cause I, I can't, I can't see that being true. Yeah. See, I, so I looked up the, and i by no means a Hebrew scholar, but I looked up on uh, on Bible Hub, uh, formerly I think it was Biblos uh, com, but you can look up uh, uh, any passage in in the whole uh, sixty six books of the Bible, and then click on. There's a button for interlinear, so it'll give you like the Hebrew or the Greek depending on it, and the, okay. the term heart as it's used in uh, in that Jeremiah verse. Um, the general definition that it gives here just kind of in shorthand, is like the inner man, the mind, the will, the heart. So it's almost like a, it's more than just like a thought process. It's more than just emotions. It's like, a, it's it's yeah. something that's a, like the abstract uh, uh, concept of desiring something. So I couldn't see, in other words, Based on what we've just said, that seems to make sense with with the context of, of the that definition being used for it. Because if God gives you a new heart, well, that's kind of giving you a new will. You know, so you have new desires. And then I've even you know thought about the the verse about He will give you the desires of your heart. Um, yeah. You know, could that also be a, a reference? I, I think both of these could be true to some degree, even if if one of the two interpretations is wrong. So one is. I have a heart and it has things that it's desiring. So maybe I desire, you know, A, B, and C, and D. And then as long if I delight myself in the Lord, then the desires that my heart have, it, you know, it would logically follow. If I'm delighting myself in the Lord, then whatever desires my heart has, uh, he's, going to, he's going to give me. Or let's see what it says. Yeah, he will yeah. give me the desires of my heart. The other question I had, though, was, or the other thought I had on it was, what if it is actually saying that if you delight yourself in the Lord, 
than the desires themselves. In other words, you used to desire A, B, C, and D, but he's now going to give you, uh, you know, E, F, G, H, like completely new desires. Now, that at least is true. That statement is true. Now, what the scripture is actually saying, that's that's another question. But I can definitely yeah. testify to just on a personal level and hearing other people's testimonies where they come to Christ mm-hmm. and they're like, man, the things that I used to want to do, I no longer want to do anymore. Those desires are gone. You know, uh, yeah. I've heard people talk about where they, they you know, were addicted to smoking or something like that. And then just all of a sudden they no longer, no longer had the desire to, to smoke. <laughs> and so, yeah, you know, there was a desire that changed. They, or they lost a desire and then maybe they had new desires um, but then it could also, again, it could also be something where um, there are things that you desire that your heart is, is seeking after or longing for that are good things, but the key to getting those, in, in some sense, is first to delight yourself in the Lord. Like, that's the the, yeah. the, the first step, in, in essence. Um, so, I could see it going either way. Both of those, though, would have a, a positive view of the heart. <laughs> In, yeah. in that in that sense, so yeah, but yeah, so so I guess if you're thinking of yourself as the inner man, that being kind of the the general idea of heart, well, you know, when you're saved, when you're born again, your inner man is changed. You know, the all all has become new, and so um, then the, I guess the question is in Proverbs three five through six. If we're told to trust in the Lord with all our heart, well, if our heart's deceitful, how do we know we're trusting God with it? Like, how can we trust that our this thing that's so deceitful is actually, you know, you know what I mean? Like, it ends up being kind of an yeah. impossibility. So yeah. I, I almost, without being a, uh, having studied in depth the book of Jeremiah or even the prophets in general, I almost wonder if this turn or this um, this verse where it's talking about the heart being deceitful. If Jeremiah has a specific type of heart in mind, if he's talking about a, a specific um, you know, state of being that these people that he's talking about, because he starts the chapter saying the sin of Judah. And so I'm wondering if he's talking about it like, hey, you know, this type of people here, their heart, this heart is deceitful above all things. Um, you know, it, yeah. it may be something like that, too. That's another yeah. option. <clears throat> Well, and it appears there's, you know, um, when you talk about the deceitfulness of the heart, he's talking earlier about um, trusting in man. Uh, in verse 5, it says, Thus saith the Lord, Cursed be the man that trusteth in man, and maketh flesh his arm, and whose heart departeth from the, from the Lord. Mm-hmm. So, um, now, of course, <clears throat> we know that Jeremiah was, you know, uh, had the unenviable job of telling the uh, Israel at the time that um, they were going to be judged and they were going to be punished. There was nothing they could do about it. In fact, they should actually give in to the judgment because that would go better on them. Mm-hmm. And of course, who wants to hear that message? You know, I mean, it's pretty negative. It's uh, you know, it's like sounding like you're you're waving a white flag. So uh, he was thrown into prison. You know, and uh, you know a lot of different things happened to him because he was not. Uh, he wasn't a popular guy, <laughs> uh, you know, so with, with him saying that, you know, he's in, in that, in, in the context of that, then you're thinking, or I would think that, that he, <clears throat> in, in saying that we shouldn't trust in man, 
yeah, I'm sure the other people, of course, in the in the 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 other advisors to the king were saying, hey, you know, I mean, it doesn't matter what Jeremiah says. We've got enough, you know, of an army. We have enough food. Whatever, we'll survive. We'll, you know, we'll we'll get out of the siege. We'll we'll overcome. Uh, you know, kind of like um, uh, in the similar case of when Jehoshaphat and Ahab were going to go to war, and they um, and they called the the um, magicians and everything to come in, and they said, hey, you know, Ahab's going to have this great victory. And then they called in the other. Uh, they asked for the the uh, prophet of the Lord, and I can't remember his name right now. But he came in, and of course, and, and said that Ahab was going to die. And he said, if you return, then I haven't even spoken, you know, properly. I've I've falsely prophesied, you know, everything. Uh, yeah, that he was. That uh, kind of I think it was Micaiah. Micaiah, I think was the name. I was just yeah, looking okay. that yeah. up the other day. But anyway, yeah, keep going. Yeah. yeah, and so you know, we have again, you know, that with Jeremiah in that position where he's he's you know going against all of the 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 sound advice of humans and saying that you know god's going to tell you the, the facts that you're going to lose um and it doesn't matter what you know what you might think this is this is over so you shouldn't trust in in man you know and uh and as i said you know your, your heart is departed from god so uh <clears throat> so that kind of helps i guess probably a little bit in understanding what he's talking about uh because then you know i mean because the deception of our heart can be that way um, in that we can we can lie to ourselves all day about uh, something that's that's going to happen or the way someone is you know treating us whatever we, we just we can uh, our heart can can uh, paint a very rosy picture in our uh, and, and portray that to our mind that uh, helps to like keep the blinders on about stuff mm-hmm. um, you know uh, it's not it's it's not always a like there's you know I'm I'm getting a little off. Uh, the topic, but like we're not. There's two different ways I think of deceiving ourselves. You can you can do it by just ignoring the facts, you know, and, and remaining blissfully ignorant, uh, you know, where you're you just don't read the instruction manual, uh, or you can you can just kind of look at it and say, I, I don't believe that the inevitable occurrence brought on by my actions will happen, you know, where like you you just say. Uh, I don't have to read the book on whether uh, putting my hand on the hot stove will burn me. I just don't believe it'll happen. I just don't think that, you know, that might happen for some people, but it just won't happen to me. And so I can put my hand on there and it won't get burned. Uh, and you just kind of deny it. Like you can just deceive yourself to that, you know. Uh, so I don't know, maybe that's more what it's alluding to, that like, you know, the Israelites were were uh, deceiving themselves into thinking that they were going to survive. They were going to overcome you know where where god was saying there's no that's not a possibility um so i don't know i'm just kind of you know contextualizing maybe what what exactly he was saying there yeah well um, and, and i was looking at uh so the the beginning of the chapter jeremiah 17 uh, you'd mentioned verse mm-hmm. five but even before that the very beginning now that i'm looking at it, it says the sin of judah is written with a pen of iron with a point of diamond it is engraved on the tablet of their heart and on the horns of their altars. So here you have a description. It's like, okay, whatever this sin is that it's being referenced, it's written on their hearts. And then it says, you know, while their children remember their altars and their ashram, uh, beside every green tree and on the high hills, on the mountains in the open country. So, you know, that's the Asherah, the Asherah poles. So that's false, you know, false gods, idolatry. Mm-hmm. And then, see so your wealth and all your treasures I will give for spoil as the price of your high places for sin throughout all your territory. You shall loosen your hand from your heritage that I gave to you, 
and I will make you serve your enemies in a land that you do not know. For in my anger a fire is kindled that shall burn forever. Um, and then it goes into the verse four, where you, or verse five. Thus says the Lord: Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good, any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an un, uninhabited salt land. And then it continues on. Well, verse seven. I'll, I'll go ahead and mention that. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. So it, it, there's a there's a uh, a juxtaposition with that, um, and so I, I think just based on, and and part of me when I was thinking of this question, I almost wanted to, I was I was planning to like study it out, but then I thought, ah, let me go ahead and just wait. I feel like that's I, not necessarily cheating, but I, I almost wanted to kind of do it in conversation just for the for mm-hmm. the fun of it. But yeah. um, that's kind of more of the idea. It's like, look, these. Uh, the kind of people that are putting their trust in the wrong things and these false gods and, and all of that. And, mm-hmm. and I was even, uh, Oh, I guess it was a couple of weeks back. I was reading through, I think I, I think I actually kind of sped read through first and second Kings and then first and second Chronicles. Uh, and I was just making a list of, uh, so I was, I was basically just looking for a list of all the Kings of Israel and Judah, you know, after they split into the two mm-hmm. kingdoms, and then was making notations of like which ones were kind of at least striving to be righteous. And pretty much Israel was just, you know, bad kings all the way through. I think there's one king that kind of yeah. turned back to God. On Judah's side, there were at least a few that were kind of striving to follow God, but um, you know, they they still had the same type of idolatry where it was the the Asherah uh, goddess that they're worshiping and then the 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 uh you know the bales or whatever, and so, so it's like if if you have a people that have, and these aren't you know these kings aren't just four year terms like you know like we have with the presidents yeah. here. So these are whole generations that are just being led into you know idolatry and worshiping false gods yeah. that were part of the Canaanite religions. It's like well yeah, so their their hearts are turned toward this. Their hearts are definitely deceitful. You know they're not aimed at God. Yeah. They're not trusting God. So. That the statement from Jeremiah, where he's talking to Judah and saying, "Hey, you know, the the heart, the meaning the heart that you have is deceitful above all things. It's desperately wicked, and you, you know, who can understand how bad this is?" Um, but then, you know, the yeah. Lord is the one who searches the heart and tests the mind. So, but yeah, so so that's kind of a, a, a little bit of a of a rabbit trail. I I think I think. We're both in agreement, at the very least, that the the objection to the idea of following your heart, as defined in our culture, is probably a good one. You know, nine times out of ten, it's good that yeah, there's you know that's not a good thing because we're typically talking to people who don't have a biblical worldview, let's say, and are trying to base decisions off of deceitful desires and thinking of you know what the outcome will be you know, uh, maybe some kind of a fairy tale in their mind. And then they're going to, f- and then they find out when they follow those desires that, Oh wow, I was deceived. <laughs> yeah. So, well, it, and you know, also just kind of, uh, I don't know, like kind of more simplistic, um, way of looking at it. Uh, I think it would apply also to like, um, you know, scenarios that come up, uh, at work, especially, you know, with coworkers or something and you're, um, 
you say something like, uh, and I've had this happen, you know, where, where you kind of mentioned something about, I wasn't feeling well yesterday, you know, and uh, I thought about um, calling in, but I decided not to, you know, because I figured I could still come into work or whatever. Uh, <clears throat> and and you have a coworker who will say, well, you know, you wanted the day off. Why didn't you just say you were sick? Just call in. It doesn't matter, you know, if your boss didn't, you know, if you weren't really sick or whatever, like, you just, you know, it doesn't matter. Just tell your boss that you are sick. You know, he can't, he won't know, you know, don't worry about it. Just do what you want, you know, kind of thing. And, you know, and I was, and I, of course, would say, well, I'm not going to do that because I'm not going to lie to my boss. I'm not going to, you know, deceive them somehow just to get something that I want. Uh, but I would see that as like a, an example of them telling me, like, you know, follow the, the uh, desire that comes up, something you want, you want a day off, whatever, you know, you could, because you could do something else. And so just, you know, uh, lie to someone or do whatever it takes to get that, you know, and, and I, of course, I, I disregard that advice because it's just, it's not biblical. It's not Christ-like, you know, I'm not going to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, it's where like, you know, you, you'd have, it's where like I would say, you know, they're, they're, I don't trust their heart. <laughs> you know, I don't trust what they're saying. You know, this is bad. Um, and I know that, you know, uh, so, um, it's just, it's, it's, it's very easy to, to see it in that kind of a context that people, uh, oftentimes the things that they desire or the things they tell you to desire are not, are not good. And we shouldn't, you know, we shouldn't follow through on it. Um, even if the temptation comes up or whatever, you know, to go with something, it just, it's just, uh, it's against what God commands, you know, and in some way we're, we're sinning, we, sh- we shouldn't do it. Um, and I guess, I think because this is kind of a, a complicated question and trying to figure out exactly what, you know, say like what desires are, are okay and what ones are not. Uh, the, I think the simplified answer in, in some Christian circles is to go with uh, the um, the concept of the uh, total depravity, because uh, with that you then you then end up saying that like all of your desires prior to your uh, salvation are bad, and all of your ones post you know um, heart change are good. And we just kind of, so it's a broad way of, of just kind of making it simple. You know, you just say you wouldn't do anything, you weren't doing anything good before, and now you're only doing good now. Uh, or like you, you, you've you been changed you know, in that way. I think what's the term uh, regenerated, I believe is what they call it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and that would be kind of uh, the way they would look at it, that uh, to simplify things, to, to, take, to take all the nuance and the question out, you just, uh, you just say that, you know, like say you're, your early life, whatever, however long you did without God, you just did bad. Your desires were bad, and now they're good. <clears throat> so yes, well, and and while you were talking, that also uh, made me think of another verse which I just looked up. It's in First uh, John, ver- uh, chapter three, uh, verse twenty. But I'll read verse nineteen. So you know, John's writing. He says, "By this we shall know that we are of the truth, and reassure our heart before Him." In other words, before God. And this says, for whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Uh, Beloved, if if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And then it continues on. But So there's an example of, I mean, John's writing to people who are believers, but he's, he's also putting forth the idea that, hey, our heart could even condemn us. And that's a uh, 
to, to my understanding, a, a regenerated heart or at least a, a heart that's now oriented, at least uh, trying to orient itself towards, you know, desiring God. But even that, you know, so, so in other words, it could be, it could be the idea that, all right, in our fallen state, um, especially if you've been pursuing idolatry, then your heart is get, becoming more and more deceived. You know, your inner man is more and more fallen and, and being given over to you know, delusions and things. But the moment that you then turn to God, well, that's repentance. It's going the opposite direction. But there could still be some deceit. You know, I, I've thought of it in connection with, um, uh, or, or the the same type of argument with the idea of of um, a phrase that I remember hearing in the the film Pinocchio. Uh, which is the the whole? There's a whole song on it. I remember uh, hearing this as a kid, and I think I remember my parents objecting to it and saying, "Hey, like, you know, this is not uh, this is not correct." But anyway, the, the 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 phrase is always let your conscience be your guide, and that sounds yeah. good. Like, in other words, so I I think of that I think of that quote, uh, and then I also think of Martin Luther. Uh, where he says, uh, I forget the exact quote, but where he's he's standing before you know the the trial that he was under, and he says something to the effect of, um, "It's not wise to go against one's conscience." Um, but he, he doesn't just say against his conscience; he's talking about with the way he understands scripture, and he's like, "It's neither wise to to do that." And so I've I've kind of thought of those two together. It's like, okay, if my conscience is uh, you know pricking me. Uh, then it's it's good to it's good to take that into account. In other words, and one there's also scriptures in in the New Testament that talk about, um, you know, if if there's something that you believe to be a sin, well, don't do it. You know, because then you're essentially sinning. It's a sin of the heart. It's a you know, even if yeah. it's not something that's sinful, you believe it is, and so then you know your heart's oriented the wrong direction. So it's like okay, so we have a conscience. Um, Depending on how we were we were raised, or uh, with, you know the nature nurture thing, both of those together can affect how how our our uh, it can affect the ability that our conscience has to distinguish between good and evil. And so, because we can have a conscience that's already flawed, that's bent, let's say from birth because of the fallen nature of human beings from a Christian worldview, yeah. then we can't just say, hey, let your con- always let your conscience be your guide. It's like, no, your conscience can lead you astray, but at the same time, your conscience can be educated. You can educate yeah. your conscience and then go, ooh, things that I used to think were fine are actually sinful. I better not do those anymore. And things that I used to think were sinful actually aren't, so I don't need to you know, begrudge myself over that. Um, and so I think yeah. that's kind of the idea of here where, where John's saying, for whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. So the idea is you want to get to a point where your heart isn't condemning you, but not, not because you're numbing it, but because you're educating it. And again, I feel like it's kind of connected. You know, Maybe the conscience is similar or at least is a component of what the this biblical concept of the heart is. Uh, what, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll pause there. Uh, any any thoughts? Yeah, because it, um, it's just it's uh, it, like people don't they don't want to have the the um, <clears throat> difficulty I think of having to kind of sort through your desires, you know, and trying to to ascertain if 
if you're you know, on the right track or if the way you're thinking is, you know, the right thing to do. And it, it, it seems to come up a lot though. I think that, you know, when you're having to make say life decisions, you know, whether you should move somewhere or you should take a certain job or, um, or even who you should marry, you know, uh, and we, we want to make it, our desire as, as humans is to simplify things and just make it, you know, um, streamlined so that we don't have to think too much on it because the more we think on it, the more it's, it stresses us or causes fear because, uh, we really, uh, especially as Christians, we don't want to do the wrong thing. You know, we don't want to, uh, if we're trying to, if we're trying to do the right thing, if we're trying to strive for the right thing, uh, we don't like to have to think that perhaps you could make a mistake, that you could go the wrong way. And, you know, so we want to kind of, um, just, you know, make it easy and, and, uh, so that we don't have so many options on the table. Um, but it's, that, that's, that's why this whole kind of thought came in my head was, you know, because, um, you know, what, what is, what about the passions or the things that we really think we want to or need to do? Uh, you know, are, can we just, can we discern them, you know, and say, well, this is from God. He's given me this, this desire, this passion for something and I need to go out and fulfill that, you know, or, uh, should we always distrust it? Um, because it's, it's like saying, you know, so many Christians would just automatically, if you, if you say the phrase, you know, follow your heart, they would automatically condemn you and say, no, that's, that's a really bad idea, biblically speaking. Um, and yet, uh, like I said, the difference is though, if, if we're actually a Christian and if the desire is not inherently sinful, I mean, it's one thing if you, if you say, well, you know, I just have this, I've had this passion for years to just go out and murder my brother. You know, most people would say, well, that's, yeah, that's easy. You know, you're, you're obviously shouldn't follow through on that. But, you know, what if you have a desire that's more neutral or maybe even, you know, falls on what we'd call a good thing? You know, you say, I, I've, I've wanted to go and, and be a doctor or, or something, you know, and I want to help people. Uh, can we just say that because it's a desire of your heart that it's, we shouldn't trust it or, you know, uh, or do we just automatically assume that that's from God because, now it's it's with you, you know, say like, yeah, in a, you know, uh, beyond your salvation moment, you know, so that now you you should trust that or what, you know. Um, and that's where I think it gets really, the, the waters get really muddy. So people just try to clear it, you know, they try to make it simple. Yeah, um, yeah, that, that made me connect also the idea. It's like, okay, so if you have a desire to be a doctor, um, let, let's say your desire is, hey, I want, I want to be a doctor so I can help people with, with their, their ailments or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, I guess the question I would have if you're, if you're trying to say, ooh, don't, don't follow that, that's, you know, the heart's deceitful. It's like, okay, well, what's, what is deceptive about that? Like, is it, you know, if, yeah. if your desire is, if, if, if this is a desire of your heart per se, you know, I, I guess th- this would be something on a personal level where it's like maybe if you're introspective, you go, "Oh no, actually, what I want to do is I, it's not that I want to help people, and it's that I want the prestige that comes from that." I'm you know, so wow, I didn't realize yeah. my heart was, you know, so so maybe there's some truth in that sense, you know, where it's like <clears throat> you don't realize the the full motivations, you know, and and I don't yeah. mean this in like a so so there there are times where I think anybody, but I can say for myself. Where I could have a desire to do something, and there's a pure aspect to it, but there might also be some other motivations that are, you know, maybe we could say they're ulterior motives, but not necessarily the primary yeah. driving force. Well, it's like, well, what do you do? Do you do you just say, well, I'm not going to do this this good desire because it's mixed with motivations that aren't 
Yeah. So, so let's say again, let's say there's somebody, actually, this is a, this is a, a much better, uh, analogy. So let's say you have somebody who desires to be an overseer, which is something in scripture that says, Hey, you know, he who desires to be an overseer, uh, desires a good thing. And then it gives the qualifications. Um, I was talking with, uh, with, with someone on this at one point, I, I actually, I don't think we, I want to do a follow-up conversation with them because the question I have is like, all right, yes, that scripture says uh, that it's a good thing to desire to be an overseer. In other words, that's a good thing to desire. But what if somebody is desiring it out of a selfish ambition, which the scripture says is not good? You know, selfish ambition is not something that we should tolerate in our in our own lives, but that, I mean that happens a ton. You end up, you end up with yeah. you know a kind of tyrannical type leadership or elders or pastors or whatever within church groups, yeah. and they're there for the prestige. They're there for the you know for the books that they're writing, the podcasts, the um, the notoriety, and and just that that whole position of 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 influence. And they might even be like you know Paul I think mentions this where he talks about. Um, uh, that there are people who are preaching the gospel out of you know envy, jealousy, and and I think selfish ambition is the term. I'd, I'd have to look it up, but he says you know it, it almost sounds like they're doing it to rival his efforts, you know, as if they're trying to outdo Paul. But Paul's like, look, in spite of in spite of their their motivations, he still rejoices in the fact that the gospel's being preached. <laughs> so he's like, at least there's still a good that's coming from it. And God will yeah. deal with the with the motivations of these people. He can, you know, that's kind of where, where Paul just goes, yeah. "Hey, God will deal with that." So it's like there, again, there's that nuance there. That's you know, if you just if you just toss it out, that you don't even get a chance to to you know discern your way through it. Yeah, because that kind of really, you know, that even just that one verse you, know, you mentioned there kind of cracks open a lot of a lot of uh, cans of worms. You know, <laughs> as far as um, say, like you know. <clears throat> talking about a, a false teacher or something who's purporting to preach the gospel maybe is preaching it you know for uh you know again and i used it before but you know like a, a prosperity gospel teacher or something who is you know obviously making a lot of money off of what he's preaching and he's telling you you're doing the same thing and a lot of people would say well you know there's no way god can use that because the guy is a false teacher he's, he's obviously teaching unbiblical things and yet, you know, like saying on that verse, I mean, the gospel is being proclaimed, you know, maybe he's doing it wrong. And that's, of course, when it goes back to Genesis, where Joseph says that, you know, you guys meant something for evil and God used it for good, where, uh, you know, he can just, where, where God can work through all, even our sinful desires, you know, and make something good out of it. Uh, doesn't mean that we should do the sinful thing, but but he just, in, 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 despite what we intended, he does something good for it, not because of what we did. Uh, but despite it, you know, kind of thing. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah, it just it, it makes it really, it, it really starts to complicate everything. You know, it it, uh, it adds a lot of um, a lot of strings to the web. <laughs> it makes a very complicated uh, pattern. You know, that that is not so easy as as we uh, desire it to be. Yes, so. well, and and that ties in with the scripture that says, you know, God works all things together for the good of those who love Him. So even mm-hmm. even yeah. mistakes that are made by the people who do love Him, you know, His His people, even those He can work into it. So so there is a sense in where it's like, you know, God's plan is not going to be thwarted, but 
No. You know, it, it, I, I've thought of it in, in one sense. It's like, okay, if God's got a plan that he wants to have happen, and this actually goes back to the, uh, the, the thing that you referenced beforehand with Micaiah, um, where he mm-hmm. is, you know, the one prophet that's saying, "Hey, you know, this is actually what what you know what God has said," because the the passage that um, that you referenced is, I think it's in uh, it's in First or Second Kings. I think it's also in First or Second Chronicles. I think it's the basically a copy yeah. and paste. <clears throat> but essentially, Micaiah has this vision of the you know, hosts of heaven being gathered before God, and they're discussing how do we get rid of King Ahab. Because you know King Ahab's transgressions, you know this guy needs to die, and so yeah. it says you know, one of them said one thing and the, another one said another. So there's like suggestions being put forth, and then one of the uh, you know one of these spiritual beings uh, pipes up and says, "Hey, I'll be a lying spirit in the mouths of the prophets," meaning the false prophets. And mm-hmm. basically, God goes, "Okay, yep, that'll work." And so he's like, "I'll I'll lie through the prophets and tell him to go to war, and then he'll die in this war." And so that's what happens. And so, in other words, it's like, uh, you know, if God's got a plan that he wants to have taken care of, um, he, there's a mul- multiplicity of ways he could go about it. And in spite of the, let's say, the deficit of character qualities or whatever in certain people, it's like if he goes, okay, I need this to happen, well, what do we have? What what kind of team can I put together here? You know, is there somebody out there that's in the right location or that I can get to this location? Like, well, okay, this person's over here. They're not really following me. This person's kind of following me. All right, I can use them. They're prepped. They, you know, I mean, who knows? But, yeah. but on a grand scale, yeah. it's like, yeah, I can do that. <laughs> you know, there's not, if, if yeah. I've decided I want it to have happen, um, you know, it can occur. And again, he works all things together. So, uh, you know, there can be, it'd be a mistake to justify sin because of the fact that God can use it for his glory. But at the same time, it would be a mistake to not to not affirm that God can still use sin for his glory when it happens. Yeah. You know? Now this gets into uh, you know, kind of the, some of the, the, the Calvinistic type uh, questions and things. So I'll ju- I'm going to jump over into that uh, in just a second here, but I wanted to give you a chance to, to give any uh, some feedback or some thoughts on what I just said. Yeah, yeah, because that's, uh, <clears throat> um, you know, important to understand it that way, that, that uh, God, God doesn't, he, he's not really stopped by our desires, you know, he, he condemns us for following them, but he's, he's ahead and, you know, behind us at the same time, so that he can still, um, he can still work it all out, <clears throat> which is so amazing because of, you know, how much we can, we can goof up and, and, and yet he can still uh, achieve his goals in the end anyway. Um, yeah, that, that was a good point uh, you're making there. Ooh. And uh, well, thank you for that. <laughs> and uh, that made me think of another, uh, another idea and I'll, I can use this mm-hmm. as a transition too, but um, I've thought of it like this. So, so, and, and this again is a good bridge into the whole idea of, of, you know, God's sovereignty and things that happen and, and, uh, were they meant to happen? Were they destined, predestined, all that kind of stuff? So, I've I've thought about it in the sense of, so let's say, uh, I guess this is a way I've tried to put together at least a, a part of the the problem of God knowing everything, um, being sovereign over everything, so He's in in utter control of it all, but also allowing for decisions to be made 
by other people, uh, you know, with wills that go against what he would prefer. In other words, uh, wills that are bent towards sin. And then, but, but also at the same time, having certain things being, uh, you know, like prophesied in the sense of like a fourth telling where they're, they're predicting the future, um, and saying, you're making statements like, I, the Lord will do this. You know, no one can stop me essentially. It's like, okay. So I've thought of it like, let's say that you have, um, yeah, I, I, this is kind of the mental picture I've had. So let's say you have a bunch of, um, a uh, hundred, a th- hundred strands of thread that are all stretched out in front of you. You know, you can maybe think of it like in a graph form. So from top to bottom, or from bottom to top, they're going up. And those those strands of thread represent a person's you know life and history in this world. Let's say, and so you could. I'm using a hundred just to make it simpler. But um, so let's say that uh, if we're trying to weave together. A, a tapestry, you know, a, a, like a, a carpet or whatever. And so these threads yeah. will, you know, however they intermingle and go back and forth, the decisions they make are still going to be woven into this pattern. Um, but there's certain points along that timeline. And, and again, this is where, you know, you could uh, you could make the, the analogy more complicated. But let's say there's a point where God goes, all right, no, I'm going to pinch, pinch together these three strands. In other words, these three strands at this point in time will converge, and there's nothing that can stop that. You know, so I, I don't yeah. mean to say that God's not intimately involved in everything that happens in the world, but if He desires to allow a certain level of freedom of decisions, but then, like in the case of Jesus Christ, like He sends His Son, His Son has to die. Uh, the evil forces of, of wickedness in heavenly places are also bent on killing Jesus, thinking that that's going to thwart God's plan. And so God goes, yep, I'm sending my son. He's going to die. The plan has been from, was it uh, the verse, um, crucified before the foundation of the world. So, in other words, that's a plan at which all points, all potential paths that that every single person in the world before uh, before Jesus came to earth and died— it doesn't matter what decisions they make. There's, in other words, there's a yeah. certain sense in which everything is going to converge into one point, and that one point is Jesus Christ dies on the cross for our sins, and so God yeah. accomplishes His goal, and then, you know, of course, Jesus Christ resurrects, and so uh, that that kind of, in my mind, ties in the idea of, you know, if God's plan is to have Jesus die on the cross, or and it was, um, then. Who are the people on earth at that point in, of time in Jesus' life? Who are the people that would be able to accomplish that? It's like, well, the Pharisees, the, you know, the, I'm using them just as in general, but all of the religious yeah. leaders who are opposing Jesus, it's like, well, those are the targets that you know, people like Satan uh, or, or spiritual entities like the adversary, the Satan, and, and spiritual forces that you know, entered into Judas and it's like there's people that are already kind of predisposed yeah. toward that or have opened themselves up to some degree, you know, to to evil powers working within them. Well, great, you know, that that accomplishes not great, but that accomplishes God's plan. So it's almost a sense in which it doesn't matter uh I'm I'm trying to I'm trying to articulate this right because it does matter yeah. in the sense of scripture can't be broken. But there's almost a, a futility in like no matter how things go, no matter what decisions are made, 
God still accomplishes the plan of Jesus dying on yeah. the cross. Like that's just a it's a, it can't be thwarted. Yeah, well, because it was a, such a necessity, you know, of course, for the salvation of the world. Um, so it was something that couldn't be it was going to happen. Uh, although I would say, uh, it, it <clears throat> perhaps it wasn't necessarily something that needed that like needed to be forced in the sense that you know when Jesus didn't it didn't take very long for him to make a lot of enemies just yeah. because all he did was speak truth you know and mm-hmm. uh, we we of course see that same that same understanding with our you know in our own lives <clears throat> that just in general on earth people who speak truth uh, even if you only speak a little bit of it you just don't you're not very, usually very popular uh, you might you get a certain following you know if you say some stuff but the more truth you speak, the less people want to, want to hang around you. And so, uh, you know, for him to speak truth all the time, that's why he didn't have very many people with him. Uh, you know, it just isn't popular. And so, uh, well, well, all everything had to be accomplished a certain way, and he had to die, you know, to fulfill the prophecies and all that. So he stepped into history at a time when, you know, say like crucifixion was the way of killing people. So, so that way it would, it would fit with. You know what happened uh, with the, with the um, prophecies a hundred years before, but at the same time, like it wasn't like God had to necessarily make people kill him in the sense that he just you know just Jesus just being himself was enough for people to want to kill him. You yeah. know, so that uh, uh, and and that's where I would I don't know, for for me I like I agree completely with the understanding that certain things in history were were uh, I don't know for lack of a better term forced or something you know where like God made sure that what was supposed to happen happened. Uh, but I, that where, where I have the hardest time reconciling those is, is the implication that some people would, would insert that say certain figures then from history, from history, like um, Judas or something were just created for that simple purpose, you know, mm-hmm. to, to uh, uh, like, like he was only supposed to live to destroy Jesus and to betray him. That was all he was supposed to do. And he had no alternatives, you know, in his life. Like he had no options on the table other than to betray Jesus and, and die and go to hell. Uh, and, and that gets a little bit more sticky for me because, uh, um, as much as I agree that, you know, like I say, I mean, that's what he did. And it was that that his only, you know, those the only desires of his heart <laughs> to kind of tie it back to what we were saying in the beginning. Uh, yes. And, so uh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, it's fine. You can go ahead. I was going to, that actually brings it, that's a perfect tie-in, because one of the other questions, um, you know, that you had put forth at one point was, are suicides a shortening of your life or the precise moment you were supposed to die? Now, that kind of yeah. goes into what we we're, you know, the, the topic we're discussing right now with regard to, you know, God's plan and things. But it also t- mm-hmm. directly ties in with Judas, because, <clears throat> so Judas betrays Jesus, and there's there is um, you know a verse where it talks about the adversary, the Satan entered into mm-hmm. him. So there's definitely spiritual forces at work in his life, but it's not like they just picked Judas, um, you know, arbitrarily. Like he was already somebody who was kind of predisposed to betray Jesus. And there were predictions in the Old Testament that kind of prophesied that. So I mean that the New Testament yeah. is very very uh, open about that. But then you have. You have Judas making a decision, um, and I, I, this is this brings up the all, whole idea too of you know the the, the whole um, you know the, the devil made me do it you know that kind of idea. It's like yeah. well 
there is a sense in which you could say yes that's true in a limited case so you know it talks about like you know evil spirits or unclean spirits that uh you know cause the the boy to throw himself into the fire or whatever so there's mm-hmm. definitely another will that's at work in this person's life but yeah even even in the absence of like of, of spiritual beings that are you know working in tandem with with evil desires and things there there can be situations where you know so think of like a chess game right you make decisions on the chess game within the parameters of the chess board and yeah. based on the other based on your opponent's moves you then react and make different moves and you can get to a point where you've basically put yourself in a corner and you have a limited amount of moves to make and maybe one yeah. of them is to commit suicide you know you move your pawn forward and he's immediately killed or yeah um, you know, and, and you could see that too. If, you know, if, let's say from God's perspective, if He's the ultimate chess player, um, where He's basically because He's a master at playing chess, He puts He moves His pawns exactly the way He should. You know, the the pieces yeah. move so that whatever move the enemy makes, it's going to end up in checkmate. Like it's just no matter mm. what they do. Um, so it's yeah. not as if, I mean, okay, so so. Well, I'll broaden it to the question of uh, of you know the the idea of is it possible to have a free will? What does that mean, and all of that? And then, if you choose, as Judas did, to commit suicide, is that uh, a shortening of your life, um, or is that the exact moment you you were supposed to die? And we could even make it as a, you know a lot of sci fi type films will will play with this like. Um, you know, where a time traveler keeps going back in time, trying to change an event, and you know maybe he's trying to save like his his lover from dying, uh, but the lover, yeah. no matter how he goes back in time, it's, the lover dies by some other means. In other words, it's like their card is going to be pulled, as it were. Uh, the means by which they die, it doesn't matter. That's when they're supposed to die. So, you know, yeah. that puts forth maybe in the case of Judas, like would he have died at that time? Even if he hadn't committed suicide, you know things like that. So, yeah. so yeah. Go ahead yeah. and uh, give me some thoughts on that. What are you thinking on that? Well, and the, uh, as far as like suicide in particular, uh, the reason why I kind of distinguish that though from other ways of dying is that um, it's true that you know I, I still believe that if if you're meant to die, you will kind of thing. Uh, like you can't escape. Um, in, in actuality, you know, we're, we're not going <clears> to, <throat> we're not going to escape death period. You know, we, we all have to die. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, unless maybe if you want to, you know, get a, get a little, uh, uh, technical and say perhaps the people at the end of the, of the world won't experience death because, you know, Jesus returns or whatever, you know, I'm not sure exactly about that, mm-hmm. but, but, but otherwise just, you know, in, in general people, people live and they have to die. And so, you know, you can't live. I don't, I don't think it's possible to live beyond your day, your due date type thing, uh, unless God directly intervenes. You know, like in the case of uh, Hezekiah, where he lengthened his life, um, and you know, like God can do that, um, but like something we can do to to make our life any longer. Um, you know, uh, in, in a sense of, well, I don't know. Even by that, it's kind of complicated because, you know, say like you can, um, you know, choosing to to eat a healthy diet or something, 
can it doesn't necessarily lengthen your life, but it doesn't. Um, but is it is it lengthening if you're not shortening it, shortening it? You know, because if you if you have a unhealthy diet and you end up getting yourself sick, again you could pass away maybe prematurely. So would you have lived longer, just not longer than your death, your your eventual death? Um, you know, it, it's. It's really been a fascinating question for me because um, it, it, it leaves such a, you know, such a, um, so many options on the table. If, if you think of it as, as saying that like, you know, you're, you're supposed to die at 78, but you could die at 55 because you made that choice to, uh, you know, clean your shotgun when it was loaded, or you could die at 38 when you, uh, I uh, decided to cross that busy interstate uh, unwisely, you know, at, at midnight. Uh, or you could die at 25 when you, you know, you uh, were trying to, um, you know, I don't know, uh, you, you, dove, you dove in the water to save your dog. You know, I mean, it's like, is that all possible? You know, can you have these accidents or can you just shoot yourself in the head at six? You know, I mean, like, it, you don't, it, it's something like I said, I uh, wrestled with because, um, it, it seems like if if we're just predisposed to die exactly when we're when we're supposed to, and, and that includes suicide, then we don't have much we can offer as comfort to people. Um, we, it takes like away the the violation of suicide and actually justifies it, uh, because then we tell people, well, you know, that's that's what God wanted. You know, your your child went out and hanged themselves at twelve years old because that's what God wanted him to do. Uh, mm-hmm. That doesn't seem like much of a doesn't seem like much of a comforting message to a, a grieving family member or a friend. And it, and it um, doesn't help to say like, like, well, we know the suicide was terrible, but uh, you know he would have died anyway just by some other means. Like <laughs> that's yeah. not encouraging yeah, at all either. <clears throat> yeah, and and of course you know they would respond. People who adhere to this kind of idea that they're just more fatalistic, um, you know, uh, but like a god fatalism. Uh, would say, well, you know, we, it's, it doesn't matter what we think about God. He's God and we're not. Just let him be, you know, do what he wants. And this is what he desired kind of thing, you know. Um, and, uh, but that is still, like I say that that's so, it's just not, comes across so callous. There's no, there's no sensitivity in that kind of a message. Um, and I don't know, uh, as a true life example, um, there was a story you probably didn't hear about. It, it did hit the news my mom kind of followed it for a little while. Um, but there was a story out of, I believe it was Maine uh, a couple years ago um, in which uh, a mom went out and crossed a busy highway pushing a, uh, a stroller with her, her little, like, I think it was a two-year-old, and she had her, her newborn like on her back or whatever and crossed in front of a, a semi-truck. Uh, and was killed. Um, and they, you know, doing all the investigation and everything, they determined that she intentionally waited until the semi was coming. And then she stepped in front of it when it, when it was not, uh, when he, when she knew he couldn't stop, you know, like, like she waited until, uh, it, it would be impossible for him to, to, uh, save her so that, uh, cause she was hoping to die and take the kids with her. Um, now that the complications were that, that she was, uh, a Christian uh, or professed to be a Christian, I should say, and uh, was, you know, part of a church family and everything and all that. Um, I believe the, 
the one of the children died and one of them survived. Um, but she died, um, Mm. in in the the accident. Um, and, uh, like I said, my mom kind of followed it for a little bit and, and her, her family kind of took a more approach that, you know, we, uh, we know she's in heaven, you know, that, 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 you know, she, this was kind of like, um, like they were sad, you know, what happened, but, but we know she's in heaven and everything and all that. And I guess this kind of brings almost another angle into whether, you know, suicide is a sin, but, but like it, you know, but they kind of acted like it was almost like the thing that was supposed to happen. Uh, mm. and I, and I was thinking, well, but how do you, now I understand. I mean, if, if that happened to say my sibling, it, it would be very, very complicated to try to just, you know, suddenly explain it. Uh, I, I believe they, they also mentioned that she had some mental health problems and things like that. But, um, but like if you just accept it as this was good and, and acceptable in God's eyes is what, what he wanted to happen, uh, you know, then it, it just seems to open up a, a lot of ground for, um, like I say, the fatalistic approach to things where you just kind of, you don't like, why should we preach that against suicide at all? Maybe we should say it's always a good thing. It's the right thing, you know. I mean, uh, you know, how far can you go down that road? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, um, that, that's where it's so. Uh, this this goes to even something bigger. I think fatalism is more of the 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 broader term or, or something that. So, in other words, because I've thought about the idea of of uh, of fatalism as being like an umbrella term for a variety of different worldviews. So, for example, Darwinian evolution would be under you know, a fatalistic worldview because if everything is just you know chemical reactions and things then it's just a string of of you know of of scientific experiments in some sense where it's yeah. just a bunch of chemicals reacting and producing and you know cause and effect cause and effect cause and effect and there's no mind that guided it or whatever no decisions that are made it's just you know it's just um you know vinegar and baking soda reacting essentially so it's it's yeah. it is intrinsically fatalistic there's no way to get away from that if everything is yeah. just materialism um you know which is darwinian evolution um yeah the only way you could get out of that is if you tried to kind of tie in some kind of a, a spirituality or an abstract you know world component that somehow like like consciousness trying to put consciousness in and saying it's uh, something that evolved out of you know matter which Nobody has any idea how to do that. You just have to have a religious perspective to be able to do that. So anyway, um, so that's one type of fatalism would be the Darwinian evolution. But Calvinism would be another type of fatalism. It just involves God. It's basically you end up with the same logical uh, result of if God sets everything in motion and if everything is predestined by him, then every decision is already made. Now, and, and again, that this is bigger than just Calvinism. This is a fatalism, which can be... So you could be somebody who has a fatalistic-type view and not be a Calvinist, uh, even if you yeah. believe in a god. You know, it, Even deism, to some extent, it's almost like... It, it's almost like a step removed from fatalism um, because you have yeah. you have God setting up like a, a mechanistic, materialistic-type world, even if there's spiritual stuff involved, but he's just kind of wound it up and then he's just watching it play out. So again, all the decisions are pretty much already made. So 
So yeah. connecting that with um, you know, the the broader underlying question uh, for for you know suicides being a you know is this supposed to happen or this that the so so I guess trying to connect that with the the underlying question it gets into the idea of being able to make free decisions now that's that's yeah. the whole idea of free will I'll go ahead and just mention this uh, and and then I'll get your thoughts on it but from uh, just from a, a purely for discussion's sake, you know, I, I don't know what, what the official Calvinistic doctrine would be or what different people might say, but if you try and define free will as meaning your ability to choose anything that could ever be chosen, like any type of decision, it's like, well, that's a, that becomes yeah. absurd. Like, not even God, by that definition, has free will because he can't choose to sin. So his... Yeah. Whatever God's will is, if it's free, well, it's free within a certain limit. You know, there's a certain limitation yeah. that that even God has. So, so I feel like that that ends up being a, a point of contention when it's kind of absurd to make it one. So, what I mean when I think of you know, do, do human beings have a freedom of will or a freedom of choice? I think the the real question, what people are trying to discuss, and it's getting. Um, obscured by you know kind of petty arguments over over terminology is with you know within the 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 limitations of 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 human choice you know in other words do human beings have a will that they can exercise to make decisions within the limitations that god has put on them because you know i can't just jump up and flap my arms and fly like you know there's 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 all these, you know, I'm limited by the human body that I'm in. I'm limited by the, the, the gravity and the forces, the, you know, the scientific uh, laws and things that we've discovered within the physical realm. And then there's also spiritual limitations. Uh, you know, obviously, uh, God being spirit is not uh, limited to uh, one human form. You know, he can move anywhere he wants. Yeah. And he can be all places at once. So, you know, there's, there's obviously differences in, in the types of wills and the, the limitations upon them. But within those certain limitations, so let's say I have 10 choices that I could make, the question is, do I actually have freedom to make the choice? And I think yeah. that uh, you know, in a Calvinistic framework, if you take it uh, to its logical end, you don't because it's been predestined. Again, it's that deistic, yeah. you know, fatalistic type view. And so... Well, as one... Uh, oh, go ahead, go ahead. As one guy explained it to me, because uh, uh, I'm actually part of a facebook group that uh discusses calvinism and arminianism uh, back and forth and of course um so there's always conversations going on there and i've, I've contributed a few times uh usually just kind of asking questions but I, I prefer to kind of find out where people are coming from uh but anyway, one guy kind of explained the, uh, the, why he believed that free will didn't exist and, that was, and he said uh he used an example and said well you know like if if tomorrow you're supposed to uh do something it's something supposed to happen if god knows it's going to be that way uh, yeah, you gotta go to work, whatever. Can you, like, can you not go to work tomorrow? If, if God already knows that you're going to do it, then it has to happen, right? <clears throat> and I said, well, yeah, I agree. You know, if God knows I'm going to do this thing, then it, it will happen. Uh, and, but he took that as, you know, see, so that's all you need to know that nothing you do in the future is, you know, because God doesn't, because he knows what's going to happen. Therefore, that means that it will happen. Um, but I'm not, my disagreement with him was, was, that I don't know if you can really equate those two things. That, yeah, that, they don't you know, logically follow. Keep going though. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, is foreknowledge really a a, a synonym of of uh, 
for ordination or whatever, I guess uh, it is, uh, where he just, you know, he ordained it to be that way. And because he knows it's going to happen, therefore it must happen. Um, or that he made it happen, you know, I mean, it, cause it, it will happen if he knows it's going to happen, but, but did he make it happen because he knew it would happen? Mm-hmm. You know? Uh, well, and, so and let me interject this real quick on that, because this was something I remember thinking of. And then I heard a guy named Michael Heiser, uh, who's a, like a, a Hebrew scholar and a Bible teacher. And he pointed out because he's not a Calvinist. He's even he, he's not really big on the the discussion of that. He's, he studies other things, but he had pointed that out where he's like, "Look, and it's in the Old Testament. I think it's where David is. Um, I think he's in like a city by the with the Philistines. He's you know fleeing from Saul or something like that. And and basically people are coming after to try and to try and capture him. And so he's in this uh, city of the Philistines, I believe, if I'm getting my facts right on this." And yeah. um, he inquires of God. He says, God, if I stay here, will the Philistines, you know, will these people in this town, will they give me up to the, the people that are coming after me? And God says, yes, if you stay in the city, they will do that. And so then David goes, okay, thank you. And so then David leaves. So mm. in other words, we have a case where God foresees something that doesn't happen because he tells David, if you stay, this is what's going to happen. And so then David goes, okay, yeah. well, I'm not going to stay. And so he does something opposite. I mean, you have God saying things like, um, I think you mentioned Hezekiah, but some of the other kings where he's like, hey, you're going to die of this. Uh, you're, and then they repent. And then the prophet comes mm-hmm. back and says, hey, I just talked with God. God said, because you repented, I'm not going to do this. It's going to be, you, know, yeah. you get this many more years or this type of thing won't happen until after you're dead. It'll happen to your son. And so... Yeah. So you have you again you have this this perspective of God from the scriptures where he is intimately involved in the decision making process and he's responding to people making decisions but then you also have the the philosophical distinct distinction between I mean you could have prophets who are they know what's going to happen in the future but they die mm-hmm. before those things happen and so they obviously are not having any kind of direct effect on no. bringing those things about so it's po- in other words it's possible for human beings for prophets to know something that's going to happen without causing it and in the same sense it's like if god can look at th- i mean we'll put it this way if a if a a god who was more of a deistic god who just creates the world and then lets it run on its own without interfering with it he could still if he's you know the the type of biblical God described, where he's looking at everything from outside of the span of history, he can see past, present, mm-hmm. future, and all of that. He could know every single decision that happens, but not choose any of it. Like he could just completely remove himself away from yeah. all all decisions that are being made, and yet he could still say, "I know everything's going to happen." Like they're you know yeah. knowing that something in the future is going to happen because you can see it being chosen by the person doesn't mean that you chose it like that doesn't make sense yeah. logically at all no and and yet whenever i you know try to it, whenever i try to picture uh what i would describe as you know a, a, a free will god one that that allows that into his his um, playroom <clears throat> it just seems like um contrary to, to the way it's portrayed say by calvinists you know, specifically where they usually try to say, well, that, that weakens God, that makes him out to be at the mercy of man because now he must wait for our decision before something can happen kind of thing. Like that's how they would, they interpret that as they say, well, you know, you're, 
you're saying that, you know, basically God's waiting to see if he'll choose pizza or ice cream before he knows, like he can't be sure anymore. And, and, and I think that's kind of absurd, but, but that's how they, they try to counter, counter, uh, argue. Mm-hmm. And yet the more, the way I would look at it is, is rather than a God that's, that has, if, if every human could be, uh, <clears throat> transferred into a, a, uh, I don't know, like a, um, a toy in a toy shop. And but they're all like, you know, those wind up toys where you, uh, you just wind up and it starts moving around and, you know, running around the room. Uh, if we were all a wind up toy, the difference for me, you know, in the way I look at it with free will is that you have like either a God or a toy maker in this, in this case who created, you know, what are we at right now? Almost 8 billion people. So he has almost 8 billion toys in the room and, because he didn't want any mistakes and whatever, he knows how everything goes. He created them all so that they all turn a certain way and they, and they always do the same thing. Like they're just, they're very robotic. And, and they say, wow, you know, that's a sovereign God because he's in control. He's got, he's in charge of everything and, you know, it all goes exactly the way it's supposed to. But it, to me, it, it seems more like that you'd have a much greater toy maker if he could create all 8 billion of those wind-up toys and then, program into them the ability to kind of freely move about the room uh and interact with other toys and you know and have things going wrong and yet still nothing goes like ultimately wrong you can have things that are you know toys bumping into each other or whatever but they don't none of them are able to destroy the whole system nothing can none no toy is great enough to to throw a wrench in the gears that stops the, the the movement of time and so he's over all of that and everything looks like it's chaotic and yet he's still in charge. And that seems like there'd be a a greater God that would allow that much freedom because he had, he's so big that he has the, that he can throw freedom into the mix and he still comes out on top, you know, uh, where we can't even band together as in the case of, you know, power of Babel, we can't even band together and try to thwart his will. You know, he said spread out across the, the, the planet and we decided to just get together and, you know, and have a, a tower building contest. And he, you know, he broke all that up too. And he said, there's nothing you guys can do. You can't, you know, stop what I want. Uh, but he let people do what they wanted at the same time. So, um, you know, I know it gets into more conjecture, but that's kind of how I look at it, where, where, where I just, it, it appears like that would be a greater God than one who is, who is, uh, pre-programmed everything to a specific level and there's no there's no uh, possibility there's no options on the table that just doesn't seem to be um it doesn't sound like a, like he's really that great of a toy maker you know if, if every toy has to do the same thing yes so. yeah yeah i definitely agree with that it actually it actually um detracts from the concept of his sovereignty and and that's yeah. that's a actually what, there was a point where, when I had, um, you know, kind of studied out some of the thought processes and arguments of, of Calvinistic thinkers, and came to the conclusion, I was like, you know what, everything hinges uh, on the foundation of the definition of sovereignty, because, and I think this is something we've discussed before, um, either on the last podcast or just um, just in general. But it's if you, yeah. it, I believe that the average Calvinist who is, you know, has has at least studied it to a degree where they can debate it has a a flawed definition, basically a definition of sovereignty that I, I don't believe 
actually matches up with any kind of a dictionary definition that's that's in use that's ever been in use because you can have a sovereign of a land and that's you know that's the domain that's the domain that he is over he is over this domain and he has authority over it so he sets the laws and then let's say he has you know uh, officers or soldiers or whatever that that police yeah. it and enforce the law it's like okay well if god is ultimately sovereign if he's 100% sovereign it's like okay that means he sets the rules over his creation he has ultimate authority over all of that great fine yeah. Um, can he enforce those laws? Absolutely, because he's 100% powerful for that. But that doesn't mean, you know, there's nothing in the definition of sovereign that requires him to control every single decision. You know, the idea of yeah. sovereignty means you, 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 it extends over your, your full, full domain and you set the laws for it. It's like, okay, well, God does that and he sets the laws in place of if you do this, then it's good and, you know, it's the the whole presentation that he gives to the to the Israelites of, you know, if you keep my commands and live by them, um, then you will receive blessings. If you transgress my laws, yeah. then you receive curses. Like here's two paths. Yeah. And why is he able to do that? Well, because he's sovereign over the entire earth, and especially over his people. You know, that are called by yeah. his name. You know, the, the 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 ones who wrestle with God, the Israelites. And so he sets the rules, and he has the ability to enforce them. But it's not that he. There's no indication that he is controlling the decision. So the the argument that I would make um, uh, when I'm you know debating or, or have in the past debated with Calvinists is I'm like, look, I'm not arguing that God can't or that God didn't. Well, no, no, that, let me take that back. I'm not arguing that God couldn't create a world in which he controls every single decision that's made you know, in this, in yeah. the way that he's, you know, like making puppets or, or kind of, you said the programmed toys uh, that are wound up. It's like, I'm not saying he couldn't do that. The question is, does the term sovereign imply or require that kind of a definition that he does do that? And the simple answer yeah. is that's not what the word sovereign means. So if you want to yeah. argue that you'd have to argue that under something different than the term sovereign. Yeah. It'd be a separate issue. It'd be a separate separate argument. It, it doesn't even fit under the umbrella of sovereign. So it's like yeah. that's kind of one of those. Ones, it's like, bro, you know, it's the um, the Anigo Montoya. You know, I do not think you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and and uh, and the thing is that you know I, I'm always a little puzzled by the their reaction anyway, where they think that. That something like free will diminishes God's sovereignty, or, or that it's, it's an attack on His sovereignty, because uh, you know, I mean, uh, when I think of God being sovereign, it, it seems so obvious to me. It's, it's like the the sun coming up every day, um, and uh, so I don't even really, literally, like you just don't think about it because it's so obvious. It's so mm-hmm. um, it's so. I don't know, just, it's like, it's like an accepting fact of life that it's not even necessary to mention, really. Uh, it, it, you know, you can remind yourself of it and say, yeah, you know, well, we trust that God's in charge or something, but it, but it doesn't seem like it's necessary to say that much or, or say that often even because, like I say, that the sun comes up every day. It's going to come up tomorrow, and we, we can just rest in that. We know that he's in control of things to that extent that, you know, the planet doesn't just spin out into outer space or we don't, 
you know, the axis of the earth doesn't just change or, you know, or something doesn't start snowing in the middle of the summer. It's like, you know, things just are, uh, there's a very uniform way of, of things being. Um, and so, uh, you know, contrary to what they might say, I, I really don't have any, any problem with copying sovereign. I'm not questioning that at all. Uh, I'm just reflecting on the idea that, you know, perhaps he's allowed a little bit of, you know, space, uh, you know, whether, whether where we're not just tied to a specific path in life that we can't uh, escape from. And, and one, just one biblical example I had come up with uh, thinking about recently was uh, <clears throat> in the case of the Israelites on the, on the night of the, the, I believe it was the 10th plague um, where the uh, angel of the Lord came through to, you know, kill all the firstborn and, um, you know, tying into what the, the Calvinists would look at, they say, well, you know, everything was supposed to happen where it's supposed to happen. Uh, you know, the people who die were supposed to die and whatever, but, but God put a, um, he, and I know he was establishing Passover, but he also put in a, a, uh, um, some, a necessary action of man that would bring about or not bring about something on his side. So they had mm-hmm. to paint their doorposts. And if they didn't, then, because uh, it, it didn't say, it didn't say that I will spare you because you're my people. He didn't say anything like that. He said, you have to paint the doorpost too, because really he was indicating that the angel of the Lord was going to be indiscriminate. And the only thing that was going to stop him from killing your child uh, was going to be if it was, uh, if that blood was there. Yes. So an it didn't matter if it was Israel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It just didn't matter if it was Israelites. It was just going to be, a, a house and it was going to kill the firstborn in there. And so, um, so they had to do something. Uh, and, and it's also kind of interesting in that point because that was also like basically a, a step in their salvation, um, which kind of brings in the question then of whether we have, whether we play any role in our salvation, you know, uh, because they essentially were told to do something to, to, uh, it didn't bring about like it didn't save themselves, but they did something that God accepted, you know, uh, for uh, as a way of, of avoiding death. So um, it's just, you know, it, there seems to be a lot of cases like that in the Bible, though, where there's things that that God requires of us. And and, and I think it, it jives and fits perfectly with the concept of him being in control of things, because, of course, you know, that that night he knew exactly who was going to paint the doors and who wasn't and who was going to die and who wasn't. And, you know, he wasn't like he woke up or, you know, uh, turned around and said, Hey, well, you know, somebody died that wasn't supposed to, or I can't believe that, you know, that person painted their house or like, you know, he wasn't shocked by anything. He was totally aware of it, but he still allowed for them to have the option. Are you going to paint it or not? Are you going to do the job or not? You know? Uh, And that. I think that just fits together perfectly, you know, an understanding of the world and the Bible and God. You put all three of those together and, and then it all fits, you know, exactly as, as we, it should. Um, but it just, I can't agree, though, with the idea that they would throw in that, you know, God desired certain people to live and certain people to die. And so he just made them that way. And some people just like they didn't do it. And they would and they try to rescue that inference by saying that. The people who wouldn't, who didn't paint the doorposts, didn't want to in the first place. So it wasn't God making them do it. They were following again, you know, back to our original point, the desires of their heart, so that their God's off the hook because He just let them do what they wanted to do. 
and yet that I think is again only possible if they have a choice because if you if the desires of your heart is to do sin but you only have the option to sin is it really your desire you know because that's the only it's the only option on the table um can you really condemn someone for doing the only the only thing allowed then you know um type thing yes and then that's that's based on the the whole idea that when you're born into the world from conception you're already Mm -hmm. quote-unquote totally depraved which yeah. just just to object to that from a biblical perspective, I think this is something we've talked about in the past. But you know, Romans one talks about levels of depravity. There's a point where God gives yeah. people over to uh, a depraved mind, which means by implication yeah. that they didn't have that level of depravity prior to that. Because what would be yeah. the sense in giving someone over to something that they already had for you know for years before, yeah. um, you know, or maybe it's you know generational or things. But in other words, there's there's degrees of evil that can be you know you can slowly sink into over generations yeah. and things. So, so that that whole idea of, in terms of like the degree of depravity, if we're talking about degrees, well, no, I don't. I believe the Bible specifically goes against the notion that everyone uh, is born with a um, with a you know the 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 worst de- degree of depravity possible. It's like that's that's yeah. not even biblical. Now that it could be that people are born with varying levels of of degrees of depravity. Maybe that's a yeah. You know uh, that could be connected with just how much. Uh, you know, I mean, maybe there's nature and nurture that's involved. Maybe you know, who knows? Who knows about that? I'm not yeah. sure on that. But when it comes to um, so when it comes to to that that well to the depravity issue, it's like well that that doesn't that doesn't work. Um, now with regard to um, you know, following God's command, you know, we typically, typically will, uh, Abraham is the reference that's used of, you know, Abraham believed God, it was credited to him for righteousness. But yeah. in the case of Abraham and in the case of the, you know, the Israelites in Egypt, you know, God gives them a command which requires belief, like they have to believe God, they have to trust what he said, but it's not like, so if I tell you two plus two equals four, do you believe me on that? Or do you believe that that's true? All you have to do is yeah. say yes. Like that's a cognitive thing where you just you make the you know you, you say yes or no in your mind. It doesn't require any action. But in the case of no. of Abraham, or in the case of the Israelites, the belief is intrinsically tied to an action that must be performed. And if the action is not performed, then there's that's a direct correlation to whether the person believes it or not. You know, um, maybe yeah. you could say. Somebody goes, I mean, just as a hypothetical, let's say somebody's like, well, man, I hate my firstborn. You know, I, I wish he would die. So if I, I believe that God's, you know, going to kill him, so I'm not going to put the blood over the door. Like, I, I, again, that's, I don't think that was yeah. the case. And um, it makes it sound like from Scripture that all of the Israelites painted their, their doorposts. But, yeah. um, but in other words, if they go, ooh, I, you know, I value my firstborn. God has said this. Okay, I believe him. Well, then that means that I'm going to do the action, you know. And that's that. yeah. So it's like even that idea, the whole the whole idea of of um, belief and belief being, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It's kind of like it's been. Oh, I'm trying to think of the word I'm looking for, but it's like it's it's been cut off or it's been untethered from from actions because of maybe, maybe from the influence of the, the Catholic Church and 
the emphasis they put on works-based salvation um, to where it's like we've gone to the other extreme and said, no, it's belief and it's faith, which is definitely opposed to the idea of working for your salvation. But that that gets into the whole, you know, uh, Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, or uh, chapter 2, verses 8 through 9 of, um, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works. It's like, okay, fair enough. I, I get that argument. But that's different than the case of Abraham where, you know, Abraham believed God and put that belief in action because God told him to get up and leave the place that he was in with his family and to go yeah. somewhere and to follow God in his entire life, you know, faith. And even with the promise of a child that was going to come in, in old age and he continues to believe God for that. So like, okay, so yeah. he believes God for all of that. It's credited to him as righteousness. Okay. Well that's connected with works, but yeah, <laughs> they're, they're they're hopelessly intertwined. You can't dissect them. Yeah, well, it is, it's um, it's just why I end up having as much as much as I understand. Um, like I mentioned earlier, just kind of the I think the 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 motive part of the motivation behind Calvinism is just to have a very simplified, airtight way of looking at things, so that they want to. They want to have answers for everything. And so you just take a concept in the Bible, you know, whatever it is. Uh, they use a lot of ones out of Romans 9, you know, about controlling people and all that. And and they, they say, well, this is what we find in the Bible. We find this verse, and it says this about God, that he can do this, or he's in charge, or, you know, whatever. He's able to thwart man's free will, something. And they, they take it and they say, this is what we know it to be true. And then they, they try to stretch it over the entirety of Scripture and say, now this means that in all areas, at all times, God does this thing that he did at this point in, in, in the Bible right here. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and they, that's why I told them you know, when I have conversations with them, Calvinists, that I don't disagree with your Scripture verse. You know, the one that you just pulled out and said, see, don't you believe now? Because you know, you just read the verse. You know, it proves everything I'm saying. And I say, you're right. That verse says what it says, and I agree with it because in the Bible, it's, it's you know, it's, it's God's word, not man. So I, I believe it to be true. I just disagree with the application of it, with, mm-hmm. with the, how far you're applying it. Because <clears throat> there's a lot of other verses that when you pull it out there, you know, from Romans 9 all the way over into the Old Testament, it just does not seem to connect with all these other verses and all these other accounts and all these little things that happen that just do not make sense, you know, where, where you can, can't say that God overruled and controlled and made that person do things or whatever, because, you know, so at some point, so it even seems like he then would be in contradiction to himself because he's telling people, you know, don't do bad things. Then he makes them do bad things, you know, and, and you say, how is that really like, like, isn't he fighting himself, you know, because he's, he condemning people for doing the thing that he made them do, you know, like, I, it just doesn't seem to fit together. Um, but I don't disagree with their verse. I just, like I said, I just disagree with the way they apply it uh, too far. So, um, well, and it's that, just, it's, go ahead, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to, I was going to add uh, that, that also, you, you, you know, with the Romans nine, what's often brought up is the case with Pharaoh where Pharaoh's heart mm-hmm. was hardened. Now there's, <clears throat> yeah. there's a, a point somewhere. It may be, it's in Romans nine, but it may also just be in, uh, in Exodus. But, um, where God says, you know, for this reason I have raised you up, talking about Pharaoh, he's like to make my my name uh, known within you know Egypt, essentially. So I'm, I'm paraphrasing. Now I've thought on that. It's like okay, 
this sounds, you know, this sounds like a good argument for saying like, Hey, look, you know, Pharaoh was basically predestined by God to, uh, to, you know, be in a a figure that that's going to be in opposition to God. But I was, I was thinking about that in just the broadest sense. I'm like, you know what? It makes perfect sense to, to make the argument that, look, the reason why God put the man who became, you know, Pharaoh, the reason why God put him on this earth was because he wanted to have his name, uh, you know, God's name known in Egypt. Like, that's what God yeah. wants. He wants people to be his image bearers. Now, there. so in other words, it's that statement is still true. If anything, it could be a way of where God's like, look, my purpose in creating you, Pharaoh, was to have my name, you know, the name of Yahweh, the true God, be known yeah. in all of Egypt. You know, that's why you're in this position of authority. But because, you know, in other words, and I'm, I'm putting these, this idea in, this is my words, but because of yeah. Pharaoh's decisions, because he was not worshiping the true God and because he's, you know, had pride in his heart and, you know, whatever kinds of evil spirits and, and false gods that were at work, you know, that there's definitely yeah. a spiritual dynamic. But because he had not sought the true God and was uh, worshiping false idols and things and even viewing himself as a, as a god, which is what the Egyptian pharaohs were considered to be, it's like because of that, yeah, that doesn't thwart God's plan. Again, God's like, all right, well, you know, I, I raised you up so that I could make my, my name you know, known through you, and I'm, I'm not going to be thwarted. In spite of all that you've done with your life, in spite of your sins, in spite of your lack of humility and, and all of that, I'm still going to make my name known, and in this case, it's going to be with plagues and with, you know, spiritual warfare geared at or aimed at the uh, all of the false gods of Egypt. And then, you know, the people of Egypt will know that, hey, you know, this god of the Hebrews is greater than all of the gods of Egypt. So, like, you, you still even have that truth. Uh, yeah. you know, that truth is not thwarted um, by the notion that, in other words, it can still be true. Uh, whether no matter what Pharaoh's decisions are, like I think that's a statement that yeah. is true, uh, can, is true in some sense to every human being that God puts on this earth. It's like we're all intended. That's the that's the purpose, and God's going to have that purpose occur no matter what. You know, especially in yeah. the life of Pharaoh because of his influence. Now, this ties into another question. It goes right into it, um, which is the idea of. I think part of the the what makes the uh, part of the Calvinistic ideas with regard to predestination and things is, is the question of, and this again goes beyond Calvinism. It's, it's a question of if God does know everything and I believe he does. And so he sees the future. He knows all of this and he knows the people. And again, this is, this is even from a position that's, that views uh, individuals as being able to make decisions freely um in other words it's not predestined they're not they're not robots making decisions so the question is why doesn't god in his foreknowledge just not uh allow or not put the people who will not choose him in other words people who will choose uh to go against him and to pursue a life that leads to you know hell for all intents and purposes whatever yeah. that is why doesn't he just keep those people from existing in the first place because I mean, he even said, you know, Jesus makes the statement uh, about Judas saying it is better for him to have never been born. You know, um, yeah. that's a pretty intense statement. It's like, well, man, you know, God, if you saw this coming, why why didn't you just not allow them to exist? 
Now that gets into yeah. questions that can't necessarily, you, know, you could even say can't be answered this side of heaven or, you know, there's, you know, it could be yeah. the case that like, well, if those people didn't exist, then other people that God wanted, you could, well, that, you can get into a lot of, uh, of problems with that. And, and then that could be one that you just go, well, God in, in his infinite understanding and knowledge. Um, well, okay. Let, let me mention this. I remember hearing, I think it's G.K. Chesterton, uh, take a stab at this kind of uh, question. Um, and he interjected the idea of the world in which we live is the greatest of all impossible worlds. And he says it's not the greatest of all possible worlds. He says it's the greatest of all impossible worlds. And he kind of meant that a little bit tongue-in-cheek. But it's the notion yeah. that you know, if, if God wants to create a world so this is one way to think about it. If God wants to create a world in which he puts people who are intended to uh, to be his image, his image bearers, or his imagers, let's say, um, and he wants to get a good return on his investment, let's say, could it be yeah. the case, and this is just a question, could it be the case that the world in which we're living is the best case scenario? Now, Again, that could be one of those where it's like, well, man, if if most people don't end up in heaven, um, you know, if if the way is narrow and few there are that find it, it's like, man, like this is a pretty rough existence. Doesn't it seem better if, if, you know, so then you get into the values of God. But, so to make this even more complicated, the question then becomes, and I think it's made worse depending on the, uh, you know, a person's view of what happens upon death so you die and then depending on you know whether you've placed your faith in christ you either go to heaven or you know whatever hell is and so if there's an eternality to that in other words a con well so so here's the question right uh, which you had kind of uh, posed is and this was something i remember questioning myself is okay if if eternal life comes from god if you know, if Jesus Christ is eternal life and He's given to us, and if we're in Him, then we possess eternal life. It's, it's we're, we're in that. Then those who are outside of it, by definition, do not have eternal life. So then, yeah. how could they exist eternally? It's like the, the question is: Is it possible to exist eternally in a state of death? Or exist eternally in a state of life, or is existing eternally by definition? Is that by definition life? And so, yeah. death meaning the end of life, and so the second death meaning the end of whatever the second life is. You know, the, the spiritual component of that, and so, and that goes into the idea of your know, annihilation versus the traditional view of eternal conscious torment, and then of course the yeah. then there's the third view, which is that. Even hell itself, or the lake of fire, rather, more specifically, um, you know, some some uh, believers will say that the the lake of fire is a refining fire to some degree. In other words, I, and this view I'm not as familiar with, but it'd be basically yeah. the idea that there's something like God will God can even use the lake of fire as a redemptive act. Like maybe that's a you know, there's a limited amount of punishment that you receive for your sins rather than uh, receiving the, the sins that Jesus Christ... Well, I'm, I'm misrepresenting it. I'm getting, I'm getting a little bit confused here because the, these people yeah. would still say that uh, even... You know, so Adolf Hitler, who's in the lake of fire, or who will be in the lake of fire at the, you know, when Revelation and all of that is fulfilled, 
um, yeah. he could still be saved on the on the the because of the blood of Jesus Christ, but the experience in hell or in the lake of fire will produce within him a point where he repents and pleads the blood of Christ. I think there's there's that's kind of the argument. Now, okay. Just to to conclude that they will and I remember reading a book where it discussed these three views and put a bunch of scripture references, but there's scriptures that talk about God um, you know, drawing all men unto himself and so then the question is well how is that done? How's that accomplished? And then there's a, a sense yeah. of like where everything is reconciled in in Christ. And so it's like, well, how can, you know, if, if people are living etern- eternally, if they're existing eternally in a state of conscious torment, well, then they're not, they're not in Christ. You know, they're not reconciled. So you have, you know, that's yeah. kind of a problem. Now, with the annihilation view, which is, you know, maybe they suffer for a time or whatever, but then they're eventually annihilated. They no, lo- no longer exist. Well, if they're no longer in existence, then everything else that's left is reconciled unto Christ. So yeah, but anyway, so th- th- that's a a little bit of a of an overview. So give me your thoughts on on some of that. Yeah, well, it uh, I brought that one up. You know, I, uh, I shared with you that, that comment I read on social media. Uh, <clears throat> it really got me thinking about that, um, and, and it's something I, I I had talked about before uh, uh, because it's. It's not a mainstream idea, you know. But like you mentioned, the, the more mainstream thinking is that people are eternally in hell. Uh, but but again, if you apply the logic uh, to that, that is kind of interesting. That people would be like, how would you be able to be eternal if uh, because it, eternal life seems to be something that God grants to sinless beings. That's what He gave Adam and Eve. You know that they were they were originally eternal beings. Uh, but death came about because they sinned. So uh, <clears throat> if death entered in with that, um, then how can you, you know, how can you be a sinful being and then somehow have eternal, an eternal soul? Like, you know, or is it only life? Is it only life that's short because of sin and it cuts your life off, but not your soul? You know, how would it be able to do both? <clears throat> it, it's kind of, Got a little bit complicated that way because, um, the, the, you know, even even death itself on Earth was meant to be. While it was a punishment for our sin, it was also a mercy because it took us away uh, from our uh, our sinful state. You know, it, it, it frees us from this Earth. Uh, if we had been a, uh, if we had been left in our eternal state with sin, then we never could die. We can never escape this planet so it well well sin was it was a blessing and a curse at the same time uh with, with death uh as, as a reaction to sin then but how could you how can you escape you know the, the torment of, of of sin on this planet you know to, for an eternity of torment afterwards like it, it's it just starts to kind of it seems like it's, it's, hit, it's hitting against itself you know like the, the concept isn't really very clear at that point <clears throat> and uh, <clears throat> not to mention, too, um, you know, w- with all that we know about God being just, uh, you know, he he exhibited a lot of uh, times in the Bible his punishment on people, and and you could always see how it was it was perfect. You know, the way he would 
he would uh, even all the laws he laid out for the you know the the uh, Israelites uh, under the Mosaic Law, you know, where where he would ask people to um, you know pay back things they had stolen or whatever, all the way up to uh, to uh, murder, where he said you had to pay with your own life. You know, if you take a life, you you lose yours. Um, so if if he has a very balanced way of doing things like that, then is it is it really balanced to say, okay, so you committed some sins, even if you want to say they were, you know, even in human eyes, really, really terrible, you know, you were a serial rapist or something. Um, is that, what, how does that equate to, to uh, time and hell? Like, you know, uh, mm-hmm. is it, are, are we just, you know, are we looking at it too uh, humanistically, you know, and, and just kind of thinking that, that, you know, a life sentence is, is too harsh? Or is it, or is that truly just not justice, you know, because, uh, you spend, you know, so many, just a few years, you know, in, in comparison to eternity on Earth, and you commit some sinful deeds, and then because of that, you then spend, you know, bajillions of years, it, it, you know, always being punished for the same thing over and over and over and over, and it never goes away. Uh, you know, is that is that really justice? Is that really a, a just balance? You know, so, um, and this kind of <clears throat> goes back to to uh again you know because it comes it comes a lot of of our um questioning and things trying to apply scripture but also trying to apply our our um our minds to it you know are we is it okay to use our own reasoning on it or are we just being uh are we using too much just human uh humanness and not enough you know just accepting god for who he is Yes, well, and that's so that goes into the question of do we truly know who God is? And ultimately, we I don't think anybody could claim that, but we do get indications yeah. from Scripture, and so then you kind of end up you know, back in that cycle. But but with regard to um, so so we it, you could definitely make the case directly from Scripture with the idea that uh, you know, you know of God being just and of the punishment fitting the crime. Like that's a that is. Yeah. Yeah, very much implied. It's very intrinsic to you know the law, like the, the Old Testament yeah. law of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. You know that's that's not a vengeance thing. A lot of people have looked at that as, oh, this is God saying vengeance, mm-hmm. an eye for an eye. It's like no, no, no. This is saying an eye for an eye instead of two eyes for an eye. You know, or yeah. uh, two eyes and an arm for an eye. It's like no, the punishment needs to fit the crime. Like that's even yeah. that principle is is part of where. You know, th- that's part of why we even have that i that that phrase in uh, in American culture that it's pulled from that uh, that principle yeah. found in the Old Testament. So you have a God who's telling His people who are supposed to be representing His name um, and saying, you know, hey, don't blaspheme My name, uh, you know, don't take mm-hmm. take My name in vain. Um, so so He's He's within the Ten Commandments and all of the things that, as well, those are headings, but all of the commands that are given in those, they're all under the umbrella of, hey, you need to bear my name well, and so, therefore, a part of bearing my name well is to have punishments that fit the crime. It's like, okay, so that means that there's a character aspect there that God's wanting to have reflected. So if God is a God who's just and who's going to let the, the punishment fit the crime... Then we have two options with regard to you know the punishments of in eternity. It's like either a a life a finite t- amount of time um, of life of of a, of a life that's lived by a person, um, 
that's lived in in uh, defiance of God, you know, in rebellion of God yeah. until their death. You you would have to say that there's something about that that we maybe don't fully understand, and maybe if we found we looked more scripture, we could better understand it. But in other words, the two options are either that finite life merits an an infinity of of conscious torment, let's say, you know, a timelessness of it, you know, however that works, to where they're going to yeah. exist for eternity, and that that's just. It's like, okay, well, I don't understand that, um, but if that's the case, then you know, fair enough. You know, God's a just God, and and that's a just punishment. And I just there's some factor that I'm not connecting. Like I, I but then the other option yeah. is, okay. That doesn't make sense. That doesn't make sense in terms of the way that God uh, puts justice forth, and and does it, you know, and explains it in the scriptures. So maybe that's an indication that we have a misunderstanding of of what the actual punishment is for those who don't choose Christ. And yeah. So then that goes to so of, so basically of those three views of of whatever hell is, um, and I'm using that term loosely because. Um, even the term itself, that you know, the KJV um, translates, I think, three different terms as hell when they're actually are probably not the same thing. So in Greek, uh, the word Hades, and this is, I, th- I think you, Tim, I, I think we've talked about this, but for those who don't know, the term uh, Hades in, in Greek, which, by the way, a friend of mine mentioned this, and I was like, dude, I, I know this, but I've never connected this. So the term Hades is pulled straight from Greek mythology. Uh, but yet yeah. it's a term that's used in Scripture. Uh, you know, it's it's kind of pulled or used, utilized, let's say, to refer to the grave. You know, the, the underworld, the the place of the dead. You know, everybody dies; they yeah. go to the grave, they go to Hades, and that's the equivalent of Sheol, which is the Hebrew word for the grave that's used in the Old Testament. So that's one word that's translated yeah. as hell in uh, in some versions of the Bible, some English translations. Another word is, I think, Tartarus, which is, a, again, pulled from Greek mythology. But it's used, I think, in First or Second Peter, um, where it talks about, uh, I think it's the angels that send, uh, which is a reference to the book of Enoch, uh, but also to Genesis uh, 6, you know, depending on how you translate all this stuff. But, um, yeah. but that's, it talks about them being in, in chains of gloomy darkness. And Tartarus was like a place where the titans from Greek mythology were were punished. So that could be a, a holding cell of some kind for specific, you know, spiritual beings that sinned, and it could still be a part of of the idea of Hades, like yeah. a section of it. You know, fair enough. Then you have things like Abraham's bosom, which could be, uh, you know, somewhere down there as well. And then you have um, uh, Gehenna, which is a. I'll read a verse from that uses that, but Gehenna used as. Um, you know, like the Valley of Gehenna, I think is what it is, which was a place, you know, physical location outside of uh, Jerusalem where they would have like burning uh, piles of, of burning refuse. And, uh, you know, and, and that's the, the physical place, but I think, you know, Jesus uses it symbolically to describe, yeah. you know, a spiritual reality. And so, so you have that used as hell. Um, and then you have the lake of fire, which is something in which Hades and death symbolically in Revelation are thrown into the lake of fire, and that's considered the second death, which seems like an end to all of that. So, But the verse that I was going to pull yeah. up um, that uses the term Gehenna is, uh, 
It's Matthew ten twenty eight. Now this gets into the this is a verse that's used for the the annihilation type view, because Jesus says uh, to his disciples, and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell or in Gehenna. Again, I think yeah. that's you know spiritually speaking, he's using it symbolically. So the question is. I mean, we know what it means to kill the body. I think that's he's doing a parallel. Kill the body and destroy the body is the same thing. So, what does it mean if if the body ends, if it's if it's killed and and has an end to it? What does it mean to have your soul end in Gehenna? It's like that kind of seems like an annihilation view. Now, you could still say it's like, well, how does that just for Adolf Hitler and then you know uh, a seven year old kid who dies and you know, do they, well. Okay, there could you could still have levels of 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 uh, punishment. You know, within the context of of that view of annihilationism, you know, maybe there's a time span or whatever. Fair enough, but there is an end to it. In other words, it, it allows yeah. for that idea of the punishment fitting the crime in a way that also makes sense to our minds, which isn't necessarily the most important thing but it makes sense to our minds in the same way that the laws of god in the old testament make sense to our minds you know it's yeah. in other words it, it seems more consistent with the the character of god as revealed in his laws um you know it, at least to me I, maybe i should say that to qualify <laughs> yeah well well and i guess just kind of that point of, about the character of god it, it's it like it, it the the wrestling I guess that I have and, and maybe other people do too uh, regarding like like you know the Calvinistic interpretation of God and stuff is it's just the way that it, it seems to skew his his character uh, you know where it seems to allow arbitrariness into him uh, <clears throat> you know some big vindictiveness. Uh, you know things that you wouldn't really ascribe to like a perfectly moral good you know god mm-hmm. um it's like a dr and, jekyll mr hyde type god it's this bipolar yeah you know thing. and yeah Go and ahead. well they would say they would say well you know that's fine because you know god's god don't question him mm-hmm. and and i i agree you know that's sure i mean like in a sense that that truly we we can't question and we have no authority to question god you know for what he does um, but the reason though, why I don't question him is because I trust that he does only the right thing. So if, if I, if that, but if my base, uh, foundational belief that God does only the right thing is, <clears throat> is challenged by what you guys, t- you know, what they're telling me he does, and it doesn't seem to jive with a good thing, th- then I have to, you know, I have to dig into that because that's shaking my whole the whole tower. You know, if if God is is not tied to doing what uh, what we understand to be good, then He's not really tied to anything. He can do whatever He wants, and that's not comforting. <laughs> uh, you know, that doesn't that doesn't make me uh, say, "Wow, you know, I can rest in Him because I know that He only does the right thing." I say, "No, I just rest in Him because I know He He does whatever He what He desires." And um, it, we we know that can't be true because there's already limitations on him. He says he, won't, he can't you know lie and things like that. So 
Well, and he also makes statements like he makes statements like I, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. So there's a you know yeah. it's like well, but it brings me glory. It's like well, I'm not saying that the death of the wicked that there's not a glory that's received because justice is happening. You know, I've made that argument yeah. before. It's like there is a sense in which it's good to rejoice in justice happening, but yeah. you know, Jesus or God would prefer that the the wicked die in Him so that they can live for Christ rather than just die in their yeah. sins. But He takes no pleasure yeah. in that. There's no joy He gets from. You know, having wicked people die in their sins. Go ahead. Sorry, yeah. <laughs> I wanted to interject that though. Yeah, yeah. It, it's just it's um, like I said. It, just, it, it seems to come down a lot to how you perceive God's character to be, uh, and, and also again, you know, whether we have the right to to try to reason out what His character is supposed to be. You know, um, because they they would say that any sort of arguments you're offering that are, you know, just based on what they call human reasoning uh, are not valid because they don't have a biblical scriptural background. You know, you're just kind of, you're just kind of looking at it from a human perspective and trying to make God out to, to fit what is comfortable. Uh, but the way I kind of try to figure that out is I say, well, in, in any way, like would we, should we, or could we take comfort in a God that is willing to torment us up with things, you know, like, uh, in Romans one, it, you know, talks about how he's given us a conscience. We're, we're convicted by the creation. We know he exists, you know, uh, where that's obvious to us. Well, if, if we have no, if, if people have no free will and they can't have any, any, uh, <clears throat> any say over that, it, isn't it kind of a, um, of a torment to wake up and know that there's a God, but know that there's nothing you can do about it and that you've been, you know, predestined to go to hell. Uh, why would he reveal that truth to someone that, that he knows one can't receive it and two, uh, can't do anything about it. You know, just like you give them the knowledge, you know, it almost becomes like you, you, you show people the way of escape from a burning building, but you say, Hey, you can't go that way. You know, it's not, the door's not open to you. Just want to tell you though, there is a way to escape, but you know, you can't get it. And mm-hmm. that seems like you know, that seems like a real, <laughs> like a real jerk, you know. I mean, uh, if if he's doing that, and, and like I say, the, the counter argument immediately is just, well, that might seem to be a jerk in your eyes, but we know that God is not a jerk, so therefore you just have a, a misconception because you're looking at him through a human perspective. And I say, well, but you're kind of, I don't know, that's like a circular reasoning, though, isn't it? Because we're you're basically you're assuming that you're assuming that God's good. So anything he does must be good, even if it's a bad thing. And I, just don't, I can't agree with that. Yeah, well, that, and, and that, then the question is, it's like, it's not just that you're assuming anything he does, that you're assuming that things that he doesn't explicitly, that, that are stated, in other words, things that aren't explicitly stated in Scripture that God does, you're importing and saying he can do these things and still get away with it, even if those things uh, could be could be construed as as sinful <laughs> you know yeah. like it's not like god says yeah. it doesn't say in scripture that god um enjoys or receives glory from from tormenting people in hell eternally there's no scripture that says yeah. that explicitly so you have to import yeah. that idea and it's like so and you could throw the same thing it's like well you know you're just looking at god as if he's a jerk for this blah blah blah, blah and you need to accept. it's like well 
No, you're just looking at God as if he's a, a God who can do things that would make him look like a jerk without being... Like, you could throw the same type of argument back because it's... Yeah. The, un, the underlying assumption is, I have the correct view of what the scriptures say God is in terms of his character, and you don't. Like, that's the that's kind yeah. of the underlying claim. Yeah, because they, they, they get into a mindset that basically, you know, uh, I, I've decided that that whatever God does is good with me because I, I don't have the right to question him. So therefore I, I just accept everything he does and I believe it to be moral simply because I can't question him. Uh, not because it, it doesn't, it doesn't have to be moral to be moral. It just is moral because I'm, I have no power to do anything with it. <clears throat> and it and presumes that you're interpreting that your first inclination of what the scripture is teaching about God doing something you're it's assuming that the very first thing that you conclude is the correct interpretation and so you just have to accept yeah. it it's like well what if you misinterpreted yeah. something that you thought you know i mean uh, the the book of job has job thinking that what's going on you know is god doing it uh, and and he has some misconceptions about the character of god and that's revealed at the yeah. end of the book where god's like look you don't understand who i am <laughs> yeah well, when it, but it, it seems to, their way of looking at things almost seems to make God to be more like a gaslighter, where he he just, he can make us, as long as he gets to accept the premise that whatever he does, we must say it's good because, just because he did it, then, you know, it gets him just free reign to literally do whatever he wants, and we have to just accept it, like we, we just, you know, we're, we're kind of brainwashed, like we're not really, we're not doing it with reality anymore. Um, and that's why, you know, someone who accepts fully the Calvinist worldview then can say, well, you know, this really terrible thing happened, and even if God made it happen, that must be good because God did it. And I'd say, well, no, my way of understanding it is that <clears throat> God is a good person, so if he, if he was, you know, doing this bad thing or made someone do a bad thing, that would be wrong, and that, you know, I'd have to reject it. God for that because he was he was you know going contrary to himself uh, and yet they want to say well you know he can't contradict himself you know like we're both we're both right in the same mindset that God can't contradict but they but they accept things uh, because supposedly he can't contradict they accept everything together and don't uh, they don't look at how it doesn't how it's butting heads they just say well this is okay because um they they have a different the same starting point, but like they there's a different way of them applying that premise yeah, that it, allows them to then accept the 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 wrongs you know stuff I guess it'd be like if uh, if they came across a passage in scripture that makes it sound like and I'm I'm using that uh, intentionally it makes it sound like to them mm -hmm. that God lies so let's say there's a passage yeah. where it makes it sound like they're looking at it and they go ooh here's God lying. But here's you know, mm -hmm. we also have the passage here. It says God cannot lie. Well, apparently both are true, and that's just God, and so He's able to both lie and not lie, and that's fine. Yeah. You know where where yeah. you know I would look at it and be like, okay, wait a minute. We both agree that this passage says God cannot lie, right? Yeah, we we both agree on that. Okay, then over here where you're saying you think it's saying that God's lying, I would disagree with that. And it's like, well, no, God can do whatever he wants. Like, fair enough, I agree with that, but I don't believe that he's lying here. I think you misunderstand this yeah. passage. And you go, well, it's just a mystery. It's like, well, 
It's like yeah, I no. believe that there are mysteries, but <clears throat> the way I've argued it in the past is I'm like, if you tell me 2 plus 2 equals 4, and then you tell me 2 plus 2 equals 5, and then you tell me it's a mystery that both of those are true, I tell you, I say, no, that's not a mystery. That's a contradiction. There's something wrong yeah. there. What a mystery is yeah. is if you say X plus Y equals 5, and then you say, mm-hmm. we don't know what X is, we don't know what Y is, but we know that they both equal 5. Well, that's a mystery yeah. because I don't know what X and Y are, but you know, maybe if I study yeah. it or if God reveals that X equals 3, well, then the mystery that you know, it was a mystery at one point in time is now revealed, and I can go, ah, Y must equal 2 if X equals 3. Uh, you know, so that, yeah. that's a mystery. X plus Y equals 5. I don't know what those values are, but I know they equal 5. I trust that. But to, to point to a contradiction and then say it's a mystery, because this isn't a paradox. Like a paradox, or t- you know, that's different. That's where it looks like they're contradictory and they're actually not. You know, how, yeah. how is it that Jesus' death on the cross can be an expression of God's love and God's wrath simultaneously? Well, that's a paradox, but, but it's not a contradiction. You know, no. so, so there's things like no. that where it's like, again, it goes into, uh, it, it's tough, it's tough to, to, to try and discuss with, with certain types of Calvinists. Again, there's a temperament mm-hmm. and there's a spiritual component to it, you know, that's, yeah. um, you know, yeah. depending on if they're willing to, to, um, uh, to have a, a, an honest conversation and be like, look, here's some actual issues with the, with the, per, with the perspective being put forward because, yeah. It it's it's almost like I, I you maybe you could say I do think that that people's temperament and you know level of, of familiarity with scripture uh, you know a lot in other words a lot of different factors but at least those two sure. things those do play into some of the doctrinal choices that people might make um, if they're if they're yeah. actually exploring things because mm. I mean. It, and again, I'm not trying to make this a uh, a deterministic thing, like, oh, if you have this temperament, you're going to end up with this. But it would make sense, yeah. like, if you're somebody who maybe you've witnessed a lot of of evil and injustice and things in your life, and so maybe you're more inclined to be angry or uh, maybe even give in to rage in some cases, and so you're, like, desperate for the justice of God. And so then mm-hmm. the idea of, like, evil people... Um, who are facilitating egregious, disgusting, horrible things and sins on this earth? You know, the idea of God punishing these people eternally and that being just—it's like, well, that's appealing, especially if I if I can take yeah. it on faith that God's being just. You know, so, yeah. but then if you're somebody well, who's like more towards the Rob Bell idea, but let's say you're still a Christian, even though you're kind of inclined toward that, you're kind of like a yeah. like a Pollyanna, you know, type. Oh, everybody's good, basically, and even if you're still a Christian, yeah. let's say. You might tend mm. toward the like, well, we all get to have a group hug at the end of it all. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, sure. And, and I think too, uh, like you're saying, I mean, you know, the makeup of people affects their theology. Um, and I, and I don't think, I don't believe that that's how it should be because we're supposed to, we, we should overcome our own, you know, personality traits to be like Jesus. Like we're not supposed to let that stuff interfere in how we, how we, you know, um, exemplify his, him. Uh, but that plays in though with a lot of people. If you let yourself, you know, if you, if you let your personality control you instead of you controlling it. Uh, but I think like, you know, one common trait I would, I would say is goes with like the Calvinists 
uh, are people I think who are, who are generally pretty fearful. Like they have a lot of, they, they, they don't like to think about the, the possibility that they can get up in the morning and that, that maybe it's really true that you can turn left out of your driveway and go down the road and, and go to work, or you can turn right and just drive to California and you have that option this morning. And they don't want to think that way. They want to think that, you know, God already knows and made me decide what I'm going to do. So I just don't want to think about it because it's just, it's too stressful. It's too, it's too frightening to think that you have some sort of power in your own hands to make big mistakes or little mistakes or, you know, whatever. You just don't, you don't want to think about it. It's, it's too stressful. It, it's disturbing because it, it opens up so many avenues and there's so many doors, you know, in life that you have to try to work your way through and, and and even though you trust that God knows that you're, you know, what you're going to do and everything like that, you're just afraid because you don't want to make a bad decision or something, you know? So, uh, I believe that a lot of them tend to be fearful people that, that want the comfort of the, everything has been controlled and set up in place. And so what you're walking, you know, you're walking into a, a controlled environment. You believe, you know, even if you, even if they want to, you know, it looks like you have the power to do whatever you want. But really, everything's been set in place. You have just a one way, you know, all the streets are one way. You can't do anything outside of, you know, the, the predetermined. Uh, and so that appeals very strongly to them. Uh, but I think that personally, I believe that we're supposed to live a little more, uh, a little more, you know, definitely less fearful and a little more uh, trusting on God. It's, it, it becomes more of a trusting on God thing where. Where so you know he he gives us all these options to help trust help us trust in him you know and gives us a reason to trust in him because we do realize and recognize that we can that we can mess up and so we have to rely on him more uh, and and if we didn't have the option to choose we wouldn't rely on him because we would know that he's already taken everything into consideration and controls everything we do so mm-hmm. it doesn't build a much there's not much of a personal relationship with with him if if that's how it is you know but what we have to when we have to rely on him then we can we can fall on him more and really connect with him um and one other thing i want to throw in quick uh was where you're talking about kind of his character um in the mystery thing uh that well i agreed that there was you know things about god you know say like you know always my obvious example is is the trinity there's things that are very obviously confusing very obviously mysterious about god that we can't explain. You can't explain it on paper. You can't explain it in math. It just doesn't, it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. He's three and one, but he's one and three, you know, and, and, and there's no good analogy really for it. Uh, but we have to just take our faith and say, well, we know that God's not, you know, he's not confusing. He, he doesn't, this doesn't make sense. You know, when we try to understand it from a finite mind, but we trust it to be, you know, true, like your example of the math there. Um, but then the question for me becomes, it does he is it okay or would he make his moral character confusing you know because mm. like is that is that acceptable i mean like and, and it disturbs me so much when i see calvinists who would like and i don't put in those words but but you, their inference is that yes i'm okay with a morally confusing god because i just you know i i bought in so deeply into this belief system it doesn't matter what you throw at me. I just accept it and say, yes, you know, that, that my belief system makes God out to do this or whatever, but that's okay because I will not stray from the, my, my, uh, preconceived notions. And, and it just, like I say, it disturbs me because it makes me feel like, um, and I use this one analogy and I tried to 
explain uh, Calvinism in a group I was in at one point. And of course, it didn't go over well with the Calvinists in the group. But I said, uh, basically, Calvinism is like uh, it's like a bunch of people. We're all drowning in the ocean, and God has already predetermined that certain people are going to get picked out, but some people aren't. Like they're just going to drown. And there's nothing we can do to save ourselves. You know, we're all drowning. We need a life preserver. But God only throws them to certain people, just the ones that he's got on this list. You know, and and then you get plucked out of the water and you're left on a luxury liner that's rescuing everybody. And you're supposed to, rather than saying, you know, God, you're you're the captain. You could save these people, you know, and there's all these people that are drowning around us, but you don't, you're not doing anything with them. You, you would decide that they, you know, there's no way they can go to, uh, they can't save themselves and I won't save them. They're just going to drown. That's just too bad for them. Uh, and, you know, you, you predetermine that. But rather than being morally outraged by, by the captain who won't save certain people, we're supposed to sit there and say, well, I'm just so thankful that I'm on board. You know, I, I'm not really concerned about those other people. I'm just thankful that I'm on board this ship, though. You know, I'm glad I was one of the lucky few that got chosen. And that's all I'm supposed to focus on, just, you know, you know, blessing this captain, where if that analogy was happening on Earth, I'd say I, I really can't shake this guy's hand because as much as I appreciate him saving me, he's he's a, you know, he's a he's a morally corrupt person because look at all the people he's not saving. You know, look at the people he doesn't care about. You know how can I how can I th- shake his hand because I just don't feel like he's really a savior. Um, and especially if he's withholding life, uh, the lifesavers like the the floating devices, yeah. or whatever, like. It's not like, hey, I yeah. threw out every single thing I have, and you know that's all yeah. I had. It's like, no, I still have a bunch of them I could have thrown out. <laughs> yeah, and and uh, and one other critical point is that, like, well, I agree that the people are say in the water, you know, intentionally, like maybe they 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 want to sin type thing. If though he is taking away their option for them to desire to be saved, you know, and want to get out of the water. Then you know they they didn't have any option. They they have to drown, and he made them to drown. You know, and that's that. And somehow he's saying that's actually a good thing. You know, I'm glorified by all the people who die. And I don't care. Uh, it's just that it makes it that much more disturbing. You know, that they're, and they're it, not. it makes it even more disturbing if all of that's true, and they end up in an eternity of ta- of conscious torment. It's yeah. like, oh my goodness! Like, yeah. again. It, I think any person who's who who is striving to be honest, they would have to at least see. It's like, man, what kind? What does that say about the character of God, where He creates people yeah. and predestines them, as John Calvin explicitly states, but but predestines them for this this experience in hell, and then it's something yeah. that goes on eternally, whether it's like. Like that's kind of a, a sadistic type God, and again, the objections yeah. that people might make and say, "Well, you know, that's just God." And you could do, "Who are you to question?" Like, no, 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 no. I'm questioning this caricature of God because nobody, including the Calvinists, nobody can claim that they fully understand the nature of God. No. Because I mean, we're talking about the creator of the entire universe. We don't even understand the way that physics works down at like the quantum level. So, so yeah. you know, that's again where it's like, okay. In in and this can this can everybody's susceptible to it, but it's like is there a spirit of pride that's blocking? It's like a mental block. It's like I yeah. think in many cases that's what's what's being dealt with because mm-hmm. so it's like okay, get rid of the spirit of pride here for a second. 
let's let's try and add some humility. Let's look at this uh, from an open perspective of what does this say about the character of God? Because that's ultimately the question at stake here. It's like that's and and again, this is a question that people put forth. It's like. Do you see that character reflected in the way that Jesus interacted with people who were coming to him? There were there were yeah. no cases where people are coming to Jesus, wanting whatever he's offering, and him saying, "Nope, sorry, I'm not giving you what I have to offer." Um, you, now, you could you could maybe throw some up where he uh, kind of throws out a testing uh, statement, like the the I think it was the Samaritan woman or the Gentile woman, I forget exactly, who comes up and asks for something like a healing and. Um, he says, "Hey, you know, I'm, I'm, I, basically, you, you're a dog, you're a Gentile. Um, you know, I came for yeah. the, for the, you know, for my people, for the Israelites, and I'm, I'm butchering, but I'm butchering the passage. But essentially, she goes, yes, but even the dogs get to eat the crumbs from the, you know, the children's table or whatever. And Jesus yeah. is like, oop, very good response. Your faith is, has, you know, you're, you're, I think it's, I think it's somebody else, like in her family, who needed healing. But he's like, they're healed because mm-hmm. of your faith." Um, yeah. You, so you see that. So you see even you know there's times like that. But in the end of it, you know, there, Jesus is not uh, against the notion of being able to offer healing and blessings to people who are seeking him specifically for that and are persistent in that yeah. as well. Well, and and also maybe throw another aspect on it. it. He even offered healing to people he knew were not like like they they weren't. We like to focus on all the cases of the people who, you know, were seeking healing because, like, they they recognized their spiritual need beyond their physical need. They were saying, you know, heal me, but I also really, you know, want to follow you. And, you know, they like they really connected with them uh, as a savior. But what about like the case of the 10 lepers who came to him? And he knew that only the one guy was going to come back and say thank you. The rest of them would, they're just selfishly wanting to, to fix their lives, but they didn't care about who Jesus was or anything, they didn't care anything, anything beyond that. Uh, but he healed them anyway, even though he knew that they didn't have like the purest of intentions uh, in asking for help. Like they, they were, you know, selfishly motivated, whatever, you know, like they didn't really care about him that much, but he healed them anyway. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it seems to portray a, Jesus seems to portray, portray a God that has such a big heart, has such a big, you know, so, so it cares so much for people that it just does not fit with the the idea of, of God just being this this harsh, um, you know, very critical uh, and demanding God, you know, uh, like like they portray that way. So um, it, it's just it's <clears throat> like I say that it's I don't I don't you know and what I was explaining before about um, my idea of, of Calvinists being off sounds very fearful people. I don't blame them for getting into this stuff because it, it's a very secure um, belief system. It's very airtight. They, they try to think of everything and they nail it all down and say that, you know, we, we can trust everything is already been controlled somehow. So you don't have anything to think about. Uh, and and a, it's appealing, but it also, though, uh, I, I believe it also, though, it ends up being something that you get into because of kind of the the way that most of them operate so that when you, when you are first confronted with Calvinism, most people have not thought about things the way that a Calvinist does. They find someone who's new, you know, to the idea 
and then they tell him, hey, you know, we just want to, we just want to only believe scripture, right? Like we don't want to incorporate man's thinking. And the person says, of course, you know, I only want to believe the Bible. So they they run to their favorite passages in Romans nine, and you know, in a couple other places in the New Testament, and say, see, look what these verses say. You know, God controls things, whatever, and and it's even the five tulips, and it's all written right there in scripture. And now you have to accept it. And uh, anything from this point, though, that seems to contradict the what we just told you, just ignore. And like I say, that's that's where I get most disturbed because it's it's almost like you know you you live with your uncle or something, you know, and you know that he's the most righteous, you know, perfect person. He always does the right thing. He said there's no reason to doubt him. You know, we we believe you know he's he's a good person, and you you and your brother live there together in his house, but. One day you open up the fridge and there's, you know, half of a human arm in there. You say, maybe he's a cannibal or something. But your brother says, well, you know, I just accept it, whatever, you know, this must be good too, because, you know, he's a good and perfect person. And I say, but this seems to contradict that. Like, we need to talk about it. And and yet from their perspective, they're saying, well, it doesn't matter. There's nothing wrong here. You know, it's just, it's, it must all be good because we already know that he's a perfect and good person. And, and, that, and I just can't, I can't buy into that kind of, it seems to be almost more of a, of a brainwashing where you just you don't you, you turn off all of your um, your reasoning and your and what would normally disturb you you just ignore it because you've already bought into an idea. So yeah, it, it was funny uh, as, as you were talking about all that. One of the things that popped in my head was it fits the well. I was going to say the doctrine itself, but not just the doctrine. The, the mode of thinking, I think that's more specifically what I'm going for. The mode of thinking fits very well with like the spirit of legalism. Uh, you know, the idea yeah. of just kind of just tell me what to believe, I'll follow these rules, and then I'm good. Mm-hmm. And so, and then that takes away that personal responsibility, which is kind of what you were getting yeah. at. Like, you know, if you just want to safe and secure and not have to think about anything, just follow the rules. And I, I know what the parameters are, I don't want to have to figure them out myself. You know, it's kind of yeah. again. It goes against like the, it's like the opposite of the life that Abraham lived. You know, Abraham was kind of yeah. safe and secure with his family, and God's like, all right, no, I, I've got a different plan. I want to send you to a promised land that's um, you know, going to end up being, uh, the you know, the evil inhabitants are going to end up being driven out, and then I'm going to give that to you. And I'm, you know, I've got this whole plan, Abraham leave your home, we're going on an adventure. Like that's kind of, yeah. you know, in a nutshell. Well, it's if you want to stay back and just follow the rules of your culture and, and not have to you know, live a, a life of faith where you're trusting in God and not understanding everything and, you know, trying to figure out what God's saying and then, and then living that out to the best of your ability, well, that takes a certain, you know, that takes a certain robustness, a certain boldness and, uh, you know, a, a sense of trusting God and putting your faith in, in him, even when yeah. and this kind of goes into the other questions of does God ever give out a, an, an irrational or illogical command? It's like, well, there is a sense in which he can give out something that seems strange, like, ooh, you know, wait a minute, you know, like with Gideon or um, or even Joshua when he's marching around Jericho. It's like, wait a minute, this is the battle mm-hmm. plan? You know, that's not illogical. Yeah. But it seems uh, it seems absurd potentially on the on the surface level, at least to to us from our mindset. You know, maybe it made more sense uh, symbolically in, in the Israelites' mindset. But even even that aside, I, I don't you know I don't think that those were uh, regular tactics of warfare. And so it's like so yeah. there is a sense in which you can trust God to give you uh, 
um, something that might be irrational or illogical at face value, um, which then forces you to actually have to think and then consider, you know, in the same way that, you know, Abraham was like, wait a minute, you know, this, this God I'm serving is wanting me to kill my son. Hold on a second. How does this work? And so I think it's in the New Testament yeah. where it mentions him uh, coming to the conclusion that even if, uh, if his son Isaac died, that God could raise him from the dead. So there, it's like a sense in which, you know, Abraham didn't just go, okay, I believe this is going to, it's like, no, I, there was debate going on in his mind for sure where he's going, okay, hold on a second. God's told me that, you know, he was going to give me a son. He did. And now he wants me to kill him. But yeah. that doesn't make sense with this. But it was God. So, yeah, God is speaking to me. All right. Well, I guess if he's going to do this, he's going to have to raise him from the dead because he can't lie. So, his promises. So, like, all of that's happening. And that's yeah. that's like the opposite of a legalistic mindset. You know, that's a let me follow God and put trust in him. And on the things that I've heard very clearly from him, even if I can't see how they fit together, they do, and oh, here's a way they could fit together. Even if my son Isaac is killed, even if God does that, then God is going to have to raise him from the dead because he promised me that I'm going to have a, a lineage through Isaac, and God can't yeah. lie. So so he's using logical reasoning. <laughs> and yeah. ooh, let me throw this uh, thing in just with that. My argument for the, the term logical reasoning, for using that, um, is actually connected. There's um, there's there's scriptures that talk about this is your spiritual act of worship, and that's that's the way the term is is translated. Some of them say this is your reasonable or your rational act of worship. The actual term has the root of you know like logos, logos, uh, logic. It has that in there. Um, I looked up in, in the Greek, and there's another passage in the New Testament that uses the same term. Um, and it's also translated. I think it's the the one where it talks about uh, craving the spiritual milk of the word, um, and that term is also the logical, the rational. It's the same term. And so when, yeah. when it comes to an argument for hey, logical reasoning, um, and against the, you know the idea that it could be like witchcraft, <laughs> so it, as an extreme yeah. extreme uh, argument. Um, so my my argument would be. True logical reasoning, by definition, finds its ultimate root, its ultimate source, in the Logos, which is truth, which is Jesus Christ, which is God. So, in other words, if it doesn't start with the Logos and maintain the spirit of the Logos within the entire argument, then it, by definition, is not logical reasoning. Now, you could still, I'll make one caveat, you can still talk about the logical reasonings of the world, but you, so you could say that and, and make that as like a, a juxtaposition with the logical reasonings of God. Like, fair enough, but it would be done in the same way that talks about like the wisdom of this world. It's like, well, the wisdom of this world, by definition, yeah. is you know, in quotes. It's not a true wisdom. It's a worldly falsehood. I mean, God equates that with the foolishness of the of the world. Yeah. Um, and then the foolishness. Yeah, because it, go ahead. Go ahead. Because it doesn't usually make sense. Like it's it it may be it may be the world's understanding of things, but I mean, it, it, I don't know. As a good example of our current culture, you know, the way that we've bought into moral relativism um, and really just factual relativism too. You know, we're we're starting to accept totally absurd things as truth, and we're calling them truth, we're calling them reality, we're calling them facts. 
you know, men can get pregnant or something, you know, and, and yeah. we're in that way, I would say, well, this isn't even logical. It's not rational, but you're claiming it is, is because you're committed to opposition to something, you know, uh, to a, on an absurd level, you know, you don't want some sort of reality. So you just deny it. Um, <clears throat> and, uh, one way I've, I've dealt with that uh, kind of an argument I've had to use in talking about, uh, logic with Calvinists, because of course they, you know, they, they tried to call that, um, they use the broad term of human reasoning, uh, and they throw logic in with that. But the way I tried to counter that, uh, in, in my, um, argument has been to ask them, well, like, where does logic come from? Is logic of God or of man? Um, you know, kind of like Jesus asked them about, uh, uh, John the Baptist, because, uh, you have to say, you know, if, that it, if you can say that logic is, you know, is, is of man, then we don't have to follow it at all. Nothing has to be logical, but, uh, but it, we can't create the laws of logic. You know, man can't create uh, the law of non-contradiction. Uh, we can't come up with that ourselves. We can't establish it. Only God could. It has to be universal. So if logic is universal, then it has to be necessarily created by God. Only someone as big as him could make that kind of rule and, you know, and put it in place and establish it for the whole universe. Uh, so if logic comes from God, <clears throat> and we have to establish that's true then we have to incorporate it into our, our conversation because it's, it's part of him. You know, if we're going to talk about God, we have to talk about everything. And so logic being his means that he wants us to use it. Uh, so if, then in throwing logic into the, you know, com uh, Calvinist conversation uh, is not, it's not wrong to take the Bible plus logic and try to come up with a conclusion. Uh, and so I try to, you know, you have to build all that up. But of course, I'm using logic itself to prove that we need to use logic, um, and that that. But I believe it's you know it's, it's intrinsically it, it, it's so important, and we have to add that uh, to the to the um, the conversation. Yes, that that goes. Boy, that could be even a, a whole subject in in and of itself. Because I remember thinking about the um, the conundrum. Let's say so. This would be more of a philosophical conundrum. I'll just mention it for reference, but the um, the whole idea of it's like, okay, it, it goes to the idea of the principle of first things, where it's like, is it is it a fallacy? Because, you know, one of, one of the logical fallacies is um, circular reasoning. And so it's like, okay, if I use logic to defend logic, or if I use logical reasoning to defend logical reasoning, is that circular reasoning? So therefore, is it fallacious? It's like you know, what's how do you defend? How do you make yeah. a case for logical reasoning without making a circular argument? And the uh, the book that is oh, it's uh, called the Ultimate Proof of Creation by uh, Doctor Jason Lyle. I remember <clears throat> reading that years back, and that tackles that, that. That's the there may be other books that that tackle that problem, um, but that. That particular book, it tackled that that problem very, very well. It made probably the yeah. best case, and it was one of those where I, when I was reading it, I kind of had to pause and think about stuff because I was like, okay, I'm not sure I fully grasp this. Let me reread it. Okay, that makes sense. Oh wow, you know. But it, it <laughs> yeah. does a very, very good job of of giving a um, a defense of logical reasoning 
without being viciously circular. That's the yeah. that's the key. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, you had, so it's like okay, we're but but let's assume we we go to we 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 have that entire argument, we have that discussion, and then we come to the conclusion: okay, we're stuck with logical reasoning. It is defended. It is resting upon something solid. So now we can use it. It's like, well, now it's not that we can use it. We have to use it. We we should yeah. use logical reasoning. And so to the extent that we're doing that well, if we come across some illogic in the reasoning that we're doing, we need to get rid of it. You know, We need to identify yeah. that if we have conclusions that are wrong. So we can't just say, well, it's a contradiction, but I believe it. It's like, no, that's not... By definition, we're not using our minds in the way that God wants us to use them. If he wants us to think yeah. logically, then we have a, a mandate to some extent to do that because that's ultimately the mind of God. Like By definition, the Logos only ever thinks logically. I think that'd be the best way I could put it. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and you uh, – once – once logic gets injected into the, especially the Calvinist debate, it, it really just, it, it, you know, it's like, I don't know, it's like uh, <clears throat> adding steroids or something, you know, it's like everything goes haywire because now, now we have to reconsider it. All the concepts, all the stuff that we established was so true and so obvious uh, because we just read the Bible, you know, at face value. And you have to start asking questions like the one I like to ask them and say, um, is there anything, you know, since we're commanded in the Bible, of course, to to be Christ-like, we're supposed to emulate him in everything, which, you know, he's, he's our example, and we, we know we can because he's perfect. Say, if, if we're supposed to be, you know, Christ-like and in, in the, in the, therefore because he's also God, God-like, basically, you know, we're supposed to just emulate God's behavior. <clears throat> Is there anything or any time in Scripture that God commands us to do something or not do something that he does, you know. Is there anything that he reserves to himself morally? Like, like, like we can understand, you know, where where we say, well, there's, you know, there's things that he can do. He can be everywhere at once, and we can't do that. Like, we can't copy that. But you know, is, is there stuff that he reserves on a moral level for himself that that he, you know, basically he tells us, do as I say, but not as I do. Uh, and I, I don't, I don't know of anything in the Bible that actually says that. But if, if if there is no example, then when the Calvinist tells us that, you know, uh, the verse in Romans 9 where, where it says, uh, Jacob, however I loved, and Esau, I hated, uh, if that if that truly means to hate as detesting them, uh, like like we, like we as a human would say hatred is, if that's really true, then again, you know, God is in contradiction because not only, you know, does he say that hatred is okay for him, but he tells us not to hate people because you know if we hate them then we we murder them in our heart. So uh, you know he's he's giving himself a pass for behavior that he condemns in us, and that doesn't again that makes no logical sense. Uh, not to mention it's you know I don't I don't trust a judge who's who's condemning me for drinking while he's while he's drinking himself kind of thing like you know it just doesn't <laughs> it doesn't look like he's really uh, truly moral. So. It just when you when you add logic and it really starts to shake everything up, and that's why they fight so hard to keep that out of the room, uh, because it it um, it just makes makes for a lot more questions. 
Yes, yes. And let me throw in one thing. This is kind of a throwback to some stuff we were talking about earlier. But this was something um, that, that came to mind that I was reminded of. So this goes back to the idea of, uh, you know, what's the ultimate punishment for a life uh, lived in rebellion uh, to God? And so mm-hmm. so with regard to, you know, hell and things like that, one objection I've heard on the basis, or, or uh, one objection I've heard with regard to the notion that, that annihilation could be the case, or in other words, something other than eternal conscious torment, is they're like, well, that kind of lessens the maybe the need or the drive for it, it kind of dampens the drive to like share p- with people like hey you know don't uh, you know don't um d- well m- maybe it, it, the the way they would view it is the the imperative of spreading the gospel is kind of dampened yeah. because well you know the people will go to hell but it's not for eternity you know so it seems like the it kind of lessens the the impulse but yeah it's like well I, I I kind of understand what they're saying. I can see that that argument, but at the same time, uh, the, I've heard the the counter argument is this, um, or, or one counter argument is this. It's like if you knew that a certain uh, thing that you did on this earth would mean that you have to be beaten uh, with with a, a whip that's got your know, glass shards in it on your back and it's going to rip your skin open and all of that. You're going to be flogged. Um, yeah. Well, who wants to experience that? So it's like it's like, oh, well, you're not gonna. It's not gonna go on forever. It's just gonna go on for you, the forty lashes or whatever. So I, I don't need to warn anybody about this. It's like, well, hold on a second. That still is painful. Like nobody wants to experience that, even if it ends. <laughs> so yeah, you know, So there's yeah. still that extent. Now the other thing, though, this is more on a personal level because you know, and you could make that argument however intense you want it to be, um, but the the point still remains. Um, but I remember having what I would call maybe an intimation at the best. Maybe it's, it, it seemed more than just my imagination. It was almost like a sense of, of feeling the gravity of the situation. And it was this idea that I was like, what if, well, not what if, but it was like thinking of, of so at, you know, at the end of my life, and then you are, are coming face to face with you know, the presence of God, let's say. So it's, it's light it's truth, it's infinite love, it's infinite acceptance and fellowship, and it's, you know, it's everything that was offered um, at the, in the Garden of Eden uh, to Adam and Eve prior to the fall. It's like, okay, so that's right yeah. in front of you. And then the sense that you have is, I am barred from that. And so it's like the sense of loss at that point. And it's not like a decision where you can go, okay, let me go back down and, and decide. It's like, no, my entire life has been in rebellion to that. I refuse to see the truth. I suppress the truth and unrighteousness. I was blinded to it by my own choices. And now I see it. And now I have to die. So this is the sense of being annihilated. I have to die with yeah. the knowledge that I will never, ever, ever be able to experience that, and I could have. And so it's like, yeah. I, I just remember thinking of like what, there was a sense of like the intensity of, of what that experience would be like, and that would be a finite thing, because you know, now it's like, oh my goodness, infinite joy and beauty and love and, and mercy and grace, and like all of that is offered, mm-hmm. and I'm seeing it, and I'm seeing other people that went in this life like I did, get to walk into that and 
I, there's a, a knowledge that they're going to experience that for an eternity and you know the, the kingdom of heaven and all of that, and I'm cast out. And so it's like the gnashing yeah. of teeth idea where it's like, oh, no. And then you, know, you go to your demise, which is annihilation. It's like, that's no joke. Like, that was kind of the sense I had. Like, yeah. that alone, if that, if, if, you know, God himself came down and said, this is the view, like, this is the, the correct perspective. It's like, well, that's bad enough in my mind to, to want to motivate me to, to tell people because, you know, I remember thinking of it in, the, in, in, um, uh, when I was a younger kid, so I get punished for sinning or for disobeying my parents, and the punishment is something like, um, all right, we're having a, a movie night. Josh, you have to go to your room. You can't participate in the movie night because you disobeyed mom or whatever. And I remember as you know, a kid, stuff like that, especially at a young age, it's like there's there's a great sense of loss and gravity that's connected with that. It's like, no, I don't oh, you know, I, I'm barred from all of that. It's like, well, that's yeah. just a small taste, but you magnify that, you know, a million times over or whatever. Like, that's kind of yeah. the sense. And I was just like, oh my goodness, like how, uh, like if if that's if that's what we're up against in terms of you know spreading the gospel, well, that for me is sufficient by itself to motivate me to want to share the gospel and not be like, ah, it doesn't matter. They're not going to be there eternally anyway. You know, like it just blew yeah. that whole argument yeah. out of the water. Yeah, because like what you're alluding to basically is that <clears throat> the true torment, the true torture of hell is is beyond the physical. It's not just it's not just a physical ouch, you know, it's not just a, it's 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 mental, emotional, you know, psychological. Um and that stuff actually hurts worse because uh and this is something that, you know, I, I'm sure I thought of it after, you know, you were, you were thinking that way, but it's kind of, I've had some similar thoughts on that, that, um, it, it was something I've, I need to probably write out, uh, to, to kind of collect them, you know, properly. But, uh, but like, like the idea that hell is a place devoid of God, um, you know, we're on, the, on a level we can't understand because on earth where we are still in his presence here, you know, he still is active in this, on this planet, in this universe. So we're not really separated from him like we would be in hell, uh, where you, you know, where like it would be different uh, things that we think of, you know, when we talk today, you know, uh, in our foolishness, we say something like, you know, it's hopeless or, you know, um, <clears throat> there, you know, this is a God forsaken corner of the country or something, you know, uh, but we, we, we might make those statements, but we don't really understand what we're saying because in reality, if you, if you could be in hell and experience it where you, you know, where, where God is not there, uh, I, I, in, you know, this is just my personal conjecture on it, but I think that that would almost be a physical thing. You can almost feel like the non-presence because it'd be so powerful with the realization that God's not here, you know, and that there is no light, there's no joy, there's no, you know, mercy, there's no grace, there's no love here. Like, like you can, you can feel the lack of it. Uh, and, and in that way it would be, you know, way more psychologically tormenting than physical. Uh, to just know that you're, 
you're separated. You cannot touch him. You can't connect with him anymore. Mm-hmm. Yes, I and and I mean, we you kind of get an idea of that from just you know Jesus' statement on the cross where he's like, "My God, My God, why have you forsaken me?" You know, I mean, he's he's yeah. just experienced all this flogging and all of that, but then he cries out at that yeah. point of like, "There's a separation there." It's like, you know, and and. Yeah that's a theological conundrum in and of itself, but regardless, um, you know, that sense of separation being, being so extreme that he cries that out while he's on the cross with all of the suffering that's already been inflicted. It's like, Oh my goodness. So what, what is that going to be like for someone who is, you know, just a, a a mere human being without the divinity, (laughs) you know, connected. And so it's like, man, (laughs) You know, it, yeah. it just it, it 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 reinforced, I guess, the idea of just like there there's still very much a level of gravity. Like, well, I'll, I'll put it this way: in some ways, I feel like that is more easily, um, what's the word? It's more, it's less difficult. That's maybe a better way to put it. It's less difficult to wrap my mind around that. Than it would be around the the notion of eternal conscious torment. Like that's kind of a yeah. It's you know because that's just I mean it's it's hard enough to to wrap my mind around being in 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 an, in a state of eternal bliss with God. You know whatever that eternity yeah. is. Like that's hard to wrap my mind around. Um, it's yeah. easier to think of it as like a, a certain amount of time, <laughs> just because we're we're bound we're bound by time at least in this yeah you know realm of existence as it is now. So the idea that there is a, an end point to the torment and there's still the sense of loss, like that, that's, that's sufficient for me. Um, yeah. Now, so here's, uh, well, let me, let me ask this. Do you, are you still good on a little, uh, speaking of time, are you still good on some time for, for me to throw in another question? Yeah, that's fine. Yeah, I just, I just don't want to keep you, you know, uh, I don't know how much time you had, but I'm fine. Okay, good. Yeah, because I'm I'm still good. I feel I feel like this is a natural progression towards the end, and I'll I'm gonna read the question, but then I'm gonna add another question to it, which will be uh, kind of tie in to, to how we answer it. But it's the question which I think you know, definitely every dude is asked, but I think every every Christian person would ask, which is, will there be sex in heaven? So on the flip side of you know of the torment of hell and whatever that is, um, yeah. The question, you know, will there be sex in heaven? Because you see that as a as a well, okay. So with the the original creation, right? God makes Adam and Eve, and he obviously wants more than just them to fill the earth. So he wants imagers, yeah. you know, image bearers, and that's the purpose of of well. So I'm I'm kind of hinting at my my I'm I'm showing my my hand here as it as it were because the question I was going to ask is. What what is sex exactly? And that goes deep into, uh, I mean, that just blows uh, the whole the whole how would I put it? The whole worldview and um, maybe the false god or idol of our, in our culture of you know sex and pornography yeah. and all this kind of stuff because the culture has an entire worldview. I mean, the Western culture we're just inundated with it. And probably the worst factor is it's it redefines what that term is. Uh, it rips away any kind of a spiritual uh, connection to it. So 
I was talking with a with a, a coworker, you know, an unsaved coworker, you know, about that topic uh, in particular uh, because you know his yeah. his kind of perspective on it is he's kind of had the the intuition, let's say, that there is some kind of a spiritual aspect to it. So it's interesting to see some of the younger generations starting to connect that, um, you yeah. know, which in our culture has been disconnected for the sake of like hedonistic pleasure and all of that. But I guess the question would be in the ultimate sense, what is sex? And I think if that can be, if that question can be kind of uh, answered in part, that might lead to if it is in heaven, what form does it take or is it in heaven at all? And why would it not be if it isn't? So what are your thoughts on that? Well, uh, the the reasoning I had behind the question was um, thinking that it, it would kind of start on the premise in, in my mind that <clears throat> basically the the Garden of Eden was like a picture of what heaven is or something like it like it was heaven. You know, like that's what it would be almost a carbon copy of that in the, in the future. Maybe there'd be a few things different, whatever. But like, but overall, that'd be about the same thing. And so. So therefore, if if sex was part of of life in in uh, Eden, then it would just it would just naturally correlate that that would still be a part of life afterwards too. You know, in, in heaven, like that that would just be carried over, and that it, there was nothing like like that. It didn't come in because of the curse. It was, mm-hmm. uh, and I think that's kind of where it, I think that's kind of where it all hinges. It's like it, you know, was it was it added <clears throat> to life only because we had to continue on. And so it's really a part of the curse in that way. It's just a necessary, um, almost a necessary evil kind of thing, you know? Uh, and, and the only reason why God made it pleasurable so that the human race would continue because otherwise if it was, you know, if it was, if it wasn't, then nobody would ever do it and then we wouldn't have kids and then we'd all die. Right. You know? So, so was that the only purpose for it, you know, or was it just something that he added to the mix just because, uh, it's just part of, of life. You know, like, like it's not really, um, it, it's not like it wasn't a curse thing. Uh, and I know uh, the one basic argument that most people throw out, uh, to try to suppress that idea is just, they say, well, you know, the, the Bible makes it clear there's no marriage in heaven. Mm-hmm. So therefore, you know, obviously there wouldn't be, there wouldn't be any sex. Uh, now my, my counter response to that would be though, uh, that first of all, sex is not marriage is not necessary for sex uh, in the sense that like you, know, you don't have to be married to have sex. Um, now we do morally here because God put rules and law you know in place to say that that you know that fornication is wrong. But if you, I, I believe that only comes into play because of the sinful uh, the the sinfulness of Adam and Eve. That because they sinned, God had to put the moral rules in place, and therefore, you know, it, it'd be wrong to you know commit adultery or uh, fornicate or whatever because he he was putting a uh, you know moral um, guidelines in. But in a perfect world, is do those rules fall away? You know, and you just so you have sex, but it's there's no the boundaries aren't needed because there's no sinfulness involved. Anymore. Yeah, so, so I, I've I've wondered on, so, so we have the idea of the marriage covenant, and yeah, 
I think that gets into. I think that that might even uh, shed some light on um, on on the answer to that question because the question is all right. So first off, what is a covenant? Because there's different um, you know different covenants that God gives. At the very least, I can say it's something that's like a, it functions as a shield of protection, um, and it's promises that are made. Um, but you don't really see like there's no mention of a covenant that was made between Adam and Eve. Um, you could say it no. was implied, uh, but but you don't really see that. You know, you see other statements later on where there's a covenant that God makes with Abraham, and you know, so on and so forth. Yeah. And so, the question you know I, I, that I've asked, it's like, okay, if well, okay, so here here's an example because if you just point straight to the Levitical laws, I think it's in I think it's chapter eighteen of Leviticus. Uh, where it has all of the you know the the illicit sexual relationships that are that are mm-hmm. barred, but in that listing is, is the barring of relationships, you know, sexual relationships or marriages between close relatives, so a brother and a sister. Yeah. It's like, well, what about with Adam and Eve and their kids? It's you know the whole question of incest and what what's yeah. the reasoning behind that? And I think you know you and I are both aware of the um, the the answers in Genesis. Uh, answer to that, which I think is a is a decent one. I, I don't have any objection with regard to yeah. you know God stepping in at a point when the genetics was starting to uh, get to a point where it would cause problems with you know close relatives yeah. marrying one another. Um, whereas that wouldn't necessarily have been a problem from the get go. But then it's like okay, so if if from the beginning, even after sin, uh, there were certain relationships that were allowed. Um, and then later on they were barred and there were reasons for that. And it was, let's say, let, let's yeah. say that the answer, the answers in Genesis gives is it's because it's purely genetics. It's like, okay. Yeah. Uh, but that's not the reasons that are given in Leviticus. Um, and the reasons in Leviticus seem to be tied to like sinful, you know, sinful, you know, the effects of sin in part, it's like, okay. Mm-hmm. So if, if you remove all the effects of sin, then, what what becomes of of this marriage thing, and is it is the covenant in place because of the fact that you know at the time of the fall, uh, the entire perspective. So I, I remember I think it's in um, in Ken Ham's book The Lie, which is kind of you know the, the textbook for the entire Answers to Genesis ministry, where it talks about um, and and I agree with this where it, at the time of the fall. You know that changed everything. Like the entire perspective of yeah. of you know, human beings of Adam and Eve was shifted. So now, you know, being able to distinguish between good and evil um, was difficult. You know, they couldn't figure it out. You know, they and then they're looking at themselves and going, "Well, I, I need to cover this." There's some I'm ashamed of this for some reason. So their perspective is distorted. Yeah. Well, in the new heavens and the new earth. If that's restored, uh, you know, and there's a sense we're clothed in righteousness. It's like, okay, I, I get that. I, yeah. I think that it's symbolic, um, but you know, I remember, I remember having a in, in an Awana group. The um, I think we were discussing this type of question or, or something related to it, and the guy uh, the, who was leading it, who's a you know, very godly guy, but he was like, he's like, I don't know. He goes, maybe, and he said it kind of tongue in cheek, but he was saying. Maybe in heaven we'll just shack up with one another. I don't know. Maybe it's okay there because there's no sin involved. Or, you know, I, I don't really know. Yeah. But then, and yeah. I just remember we kind of chuckled at that, but at the same time it's like, again, that gets to the question of what is what is sex? Because we know that it at the very least 
has the capacity to produce children. And, you know, I've wondered, it's like, okay, if, if there is no marriage in heaven, again, you could still, that, that, that's a, that you, it doesn't necessarily uh, equate to there being no such thing as sex. And so if there is a such thing as, as sex in heaven, will it produce offspring? And if that's the case, like what, what's the nature of those beings that are going to be, uh, you know, born or into the world? Like is God still going to have that or is it just, you know, so this then goes into it's all speculation. And fair enough, that's what we're doing. Yeah. We're speculating. So then, then I start thinking of like the okay. Well, what's the purpose of sex? It's like at at one level, um, you know, you could say in a in a spiritual sense, it is a very intimate relationship. But you know, it, it, this is where it, it defies the the reasoning of our of our culture. It's much more than just a physical act, um, yeah. and and it's part of it is I think part of the difficulty I've had in trying to wrestle with that is. It's hard not to import some of the, um, what's the word? Some of the depravity that's connected with mm-hmm. your sexual desires. Because it's like, well, you know, is this is this uh, is this just a male fantasy of like, hey, when I get to heaven, I get to sleep with every single woman that's there out of you know this lustful desire yeah. that I have. It's like, well, okay, that's obviously not good, but yeah. It's also not good on earth right now if you have a spouse and you only view your spouse as like a drug, like a sexual drug. Well, that's not good either, yeah. even though you could, you know, technically get away with it within the bounds or confines of a marriage. But if it's viewed mm-hmm. in the same spirit of, let's say, the Song of Solomon, where it's a, you know, it's a, rather than it's, it's more of a giving than it is a taking. And so you're giving an aspect of, you know, what is it, um, you know, there's agape, there's phileo, there's eros, and yeah. then uh, sturge, I think is the other one. It's like, is it is it because of, you know, this is the question I have, is it because of the effect of the fall that the um, the expression of, of eros, of that, you know, erotic love, I guess, defined by scripture, yeah. is that something that has to be protected within the confines of a marriage covenant because of the sinfulness of, of our flesh. And so when the sinfulness yeah. is removed, then that expression can be um, you know, given uh, untainted by sin. You know, so, so I guess the question would be like, if Adam and Eve hadn't sinned, would all of their siblings or every single human being on the earth, you know, could every man potentially, and this again sounds weird, but um, you know, sleep with every single female because it would be done out of a spirit of love rather than a spirit of lust. I think that's what I'm trying to, but but it's, (laughs) yeah. So so, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. And it's a concept that's foreign to us because it's like, you know, it's it's like basically if you, I don't know to analogize it a different way. It's like basically if you're, if you always have lived in a pigsty, you've always been covered in mud, you can't picture what it's like to be clean because you've never experienced it. So, you know, it, to, to us, you know, the idea of of you know having incorporating sex and then having no restrictions on it sounds sinful. We say, well, that sounds terrible. That sounds, you know, but I can't, I can't imagine that because we can't, we can't break free of of the curse of sin here, so that it it does not make sense. But it doesn't necessarily mean that it's wrong. It just means that 
it's it's something we can't uh, we cannot um, I don't know we can't understand it we can't imagine it uh, because uh, and, and really I mean the, I, like you were saying you know it, it's just all you know speculation we can't prove anything. And in the end, ultimately, when I, you know, when you, when I get to heaven, I'm not going to, I'm sure that won't be the first thought in my head, you know, any <laughs> kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, yeah. but, but I would say that the reason why these kinds of questions, especially, you know, even if it's more almost tongue in cheek, uh, the reason why these kind of questions uh, intrigue me though, is that it, it just, it's, it's where I look at the Bible and I, and I want to say, I want to just accept the commonly accepted view of something, but something holds me back. You know, something I have another thought, something doesn't make any sense. And, and I want to be able to just, you know, look at it and say, you know, maybe there's something we're missing here. And I, and I try to just have another perspective and, you know, and, and it's not that I'm not willing to be corrected. If, if someone can show me where my reasoning is off, where my, you know, my understanding is, is off, I'm fine with that. Uh, but I just want, I can't, just take at face value something that everyone has always known for the last 2000 years. Like I just don't, I, I really have a hard time with those kinds of things in the Bible, unless it's obvious truths, you know, obviously Jesus is God or something like that. But where there's places where there's things for leeway, I just have a hard time with people just, you know, making a very strong overview statement. You know, like I say, you know, where they, where they always point to the, to the fact that there's no marriage in heaven. I say, but that doesn't necessarily negate the possibility of sex that just says that nobody gets married but that isn't is, maybe that just means that marriage is unnecessary because um well marriage is a picture of christ in the church and all that and I, and I definitely get all that uh symbolic you know imagery and everything that's that's all very crucial uh marriage also though if if we understand it as you know the way we're talking about it that like you know sex was already part of creation and then uh, because of sin, God had to establish, you know, boundaries on everything. So he established marriage because he's like, hey, you know, we have to kind of establish an ownership around here or else everyone's going to say that they can just all sleep with each other's wives and husbands and stuff because no one's like, you know, there's no standard. So I have to put some rules in place. You know, basically you 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 uh, you have to, you know, stick with one person or, you know, and of course, that's another question, you know, whether it's multiple people are acceptable or not in a polygamous mm-hmm. marriage. But uh, but just, you know, if you want to say that you know, one man, one woman or whatever, that God had to establish those boundaries because he said, now you committed to this person just like you commit to me, you know, in, in a, having a relationship with me, you have to commit to this one person. Like it's not, it's a free for all. Uh, and that, you know, but it, but it was more of a necessity just for the, uh, for sake of clarity rather than uh, like uh, it, with, with a moral you know combination. But it wasn't like, the, it wasn't like, you know, you just had the first uh, motivation with just we have to do this because it's a moral thing kind of thing. Um, so uh, it just it, like I say, there's just it's there. There seems to be to me enough of a crack. Uh, the door is open just enough that, that it can't be just established that it's not that it's not part of, of heaven. Well, and so the other thing, too, with all of this, and this is maybe another uh, angle to come from. Uh, and this again kind of ties in with a conversation I had with a, with a coworker, your lost coworker, um, of where he was like, "There's there's something else to you know to sex that our culture has mm-hmm. has you know blinded us to." And in his you know his intuition was there's there's a spiritual component, 
It's like, okay, so yeah. let's let's take that. So if we're if we're talking about like types and shadows, it's you know blatantly obvious that the marriage relationship, the husband and the wife, as as mentioned in the New Testament, is a picture and a representation of the relationship that Christ has with us. You know, Christ being the head and we being the bride of yeah. Christ. It's like, okay. So then within the context of marriage, when a husband and wife engage in the act of sex, or uh, let's just say, you know, the in the, the maybe more of a of a category of expressing this this eros form of love. Um yeah. you know, as maybe depicted in Song of Solomon. You know, there's a ton of variety there. But when they do that, what are they doing? It's like, okay, it can produce a child, but you know, in Song of Solomon, there's no talk of producing a child. There's just talk of enjoying one another on a on a physical level, but also spiritual. And you know, there's there's a lot more. In other words, the the idea of a child is not is not mentioned at all in Song of Solomon. So there's something else that they're going for, and you know, fair enough to the people that that will allegorize that and say that this is a depiction of Christ in the church. Okay, fair enough. In the ultimate sense, I think that's correct. But um, yeah. the genre is clearly, um, this is not a, you know, uh, this is a well-known fact. The genre of literature is erotic. It's a l- erotic literature. There's a reason why I think the, uh, the Jews had a rule that you had to be 30 before you could read it. <laughs> you know, so they even put restrictions <laughs> on that. It's like, I don't think that's yeah. because they didn't want people to know about God's relationship with, with them. It's like, okay, so if all of that has to do with this this particular uh, you know flavor of love or genre of love expressed between a husband and a wife, then yeah. that is you know, I think I, I remember explaining it once. I was I was talking with um with a, a cousin and uh, my cousin's uh, husband. I was I was talking with them and you know speaking fairly candidly about it, but you know in in a respectful manner. And I'd said I was like I feel like, or it, it seems to me that the you know the physical act of sex, uh, you know, done within the body between a husband and a wife, is it's like a symbolic representation of what's happen, happening on a spiritual level. In other words, it's the entangling or the intertwining, you know, the, the cleaving, as, as Scripture would say, of two souls yeah. or two spirits or whatever. Um, you know, it's it's as if. It, it's again. It, go, it goes to the idea of it's like uh, in in the Levitical laws. If you wanted to offer gratitude to God, um, you could offer up a a grain offering or or whatever it was. It's it's not that it's a grain offering. You're doing. It's like you go. I want to show God gratitude. How do I do that? And so God goes. All right, we'll do this. And you go, oh yeah. great! You know, I'll do this because I know that this is something that you have given me a thumbs up on, and so you're expressing a a spiritual reality in a physical manner. You know, in in this physical yeah. realm that we exist in. It's like okay, so if that's what's happening on a physical level, you know, it. Well, I'll put it this way: if that's what the biblical perspective is, that this is a spiritual reality, and it's it's connected symbolically with the physical expression of it well then it makes no sense from a you know a lost world view uh you know it, it to try and disconnect that is to be stupid <laughs> at the very least and that's yeah. where our culture's at it's like okay so now we put ourselves in a in a heavenly realm where there's perfection and we have new bodies 
that are spiritual yeah. bodies, as I think First Corinthians fifteen talks about. It's like okay, so let's say that uh, that our spiritual form is incapable of having the the physical sex act. Let's say it's like okay, fair enough. But prior to that, in this reality that we live in, it wasn't just a physical act that was happening. You know, there's a spiritual thing behind it. There's a psychological yeah. thing. There's all of those. So if the only thing that is done away with is, you know, the, the seed, as it were, you know, the, the seed that then dies and becomes a, a tree, you know, that grows and has a different body, a different form than, than its seed had, um, what is the fuller expression? You know, in other words, what's the, if sex is a shadow, what's it a shadow of? And again, yeah. I, I mean that not in the sense of like, oh, well, the marriage, it's like, no, 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 marriage is a shadow. You know, marriage is a shadow yeah. of of you know Christ and the church that relationship. So yeah. within that context of marriage being the overall shadow, there's a physical act of sex, which is a you know defined as knowing one another. So what is that shadowing? What is that particular component shadowing yeah. in the new heavens and the new earth? So here's where I go: is it is it possible that the the fulfillment or the uh, the expression of that, you know, I guess the object that is shadowed in this world in the act of sex, in the context of the new heaven and new earth where there's no sin, it, I'm trying to articulate this right, is it possible that that sense of knowing, that sense of intimate uh, community and connection with other people will be spiritually realized with every single person there? You know, uh, yeah. if there's no, um, you know, in Christ there is no slave or free, male or female. And again, I'm not saying yeah. necessarily that we're going to not have genders to some degree in heaven. I think that that could still be uh, there. But is there a greater level of knowing, of intimate knowing? Because that's, I mean, I think any couple who's been married for a long time realizes pretty quickly that the physical stuff, while it's enjoyable, if they just stay on that level, it, it just, it's like, no, I'm actually looking for something more. You know, I mean, sex addicts know this yeah. very, very much because it's like, well, the chemical high is, you know, not enough. And so you either go to, you know, uh, greater levels of depravity or just trying to do everything that's not depraved. And then you still end up going, well, I guess I'm looking for something else, you know? Yeah. And so it's like, uh, that hunger, that desire to be known, well, it's obviously ultimately fulfilled in Christ, but Christ also is a yeah. body of believers, you know. Um, so, mm-hmm. so yeah, that that's kind of where I thought. I was like, okay, could that be fulfilled across the board? In other words, not, not just like the wife that I have here on earth, and then, okay, now we have a greater intimacy in heaven, but what if that's the entire body of Christ? Yeah. Yeah, and, and it's... Um... I think the only the only reason why people have objections to any of this kind of suggestion is just because they they say it, it it goes against like their I don't know like their preconceived moral notions of heaven. <laughs> I guess yeah. they would put it, you know, it, and I'm like, but only because you're saying you're comparing heaven to earth. I mean, it's, it's a totally different place. You know, we we we're, when you're free from. Uh, the bondage of sin, I don't think, you know, it seems like, you know, literally the rules are off. Like, you know, you don't have to, uh, we wouldn't have to worry about, you know, whether, 
something was right or wrong because it's you know it's just only right there's no sinful tempta- temptation there and also it's uh you 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 don't have the sinful desire so you're not even doing things with a with the sinful mindset you're just you're just doing you know and there's nothing wrong with it mm-hmm. uh, it's the it's the idea of if we walk in the spirit then we're no longer under the law it's like yeah. again the law's not evil but the things that God wants you to do, you're going to do, if anything, by accident, so long as you're yeah. walking in the Spirit. And so it's like if your choice is, yeah. I'm going to walk in the Spirit, you know, whatever that means, uh, then you're going to be fulfilling whatever aspects of God's law he wants you to fulfill, you know, in the, in the New Covenant yeah. sense. So, yes. Yeah, and it's just, uh, it's not... You know, like I said, I mean, it's nothing I can, nothing I can prove on paper. Nothing you can even prove in the Bible, and it really won't ultimately matter. But it's just things that, um, things that that I just have to think about because you know, I'm like, you gotta, I want to know all the aspects of of some suggestion, whatever it is in the Bible, you know. Not just something like this, but you know, I want to know all the different ways of looking at it, rather than just accepting the first most acceptable way that everyone always sees it because that's the comfortable view. Because uh, mm-hmm. I, I just, I'm more, I'm more convinced that God lives uncomfortably, and He wants us to do the same. Like that, that He doesn't, uh, He doesn't want us to settle very often for things. He wants us to, you know, seek out to go further, to, to look harder, to, to, you know, pray more or whatever, like, you know, that he wants us to really work at everything. Um, he didn't, that's why he gave us personal responsibility. You know, that's why he wants us to do something. Even, I mean, even Adam and Eve in, in paradise and in the garden still had responsibilities. They were still required to do things, you know? So, uh, I think he just, he just wants so much more from us. He doesn't want us to just accept anything really he you know uh he doesn't mind if if we question stuff because he wants us to question so we'll learn more about him uh because you'll never you know you, you never it's like you can sit in a library your whole life but if you never open a book you won't learn anything mm-hmm. you know if you never if you just if you just say yeah but there's all the stuff in here is true You're like well okay that's great but if you but you have to go over and read the book to know why it's true you know you can't just you can accept that that fact or you can prove that fact you know, and uh, it's just, you know, how I, how I have – that's my my way of looking at the world. Yeah. <laughs> and what, I know for a lot of people, they, they don't – you know, it's not appealing because it, it requires a lot of thought and a lot of, you know, shaking up your your comfort zone. Yes, and your preconceived notions of, of what you think is true. And, I mean, well, yeah. and, and – and I connect that, and I, th- I think I've mentioned this before in conversations in the past, but um, of the whole the whole experience of, of Jacob in the Old Testament wrestling with the angel of the Lord all night long, mm-hmm. and uh, I think I think we've talked about this at some point, but it, I remember thinking about that. I was like, it's such a strange story. Like he's wrestling with the angel of the Lord um, all night long. And then there's a point where he wins, like he he beats God in some sense. It's like, well, that that's unexpected, yep. and and then um, you know he's he's still holding on to this this angel of the Lord figure, and 
um, that's when the angel of the Lord then reaches into his like inner thigh, uh, kind of socket or whatever, touches touches him there and causes you know a sharp pain or whatever. And then yeah. uh, even still, you know, uh, Jacob clings to him and says, "I won't let you go until you bless me." And so then. <laughs> Uh, you know, then the angel of the Lord blesses him, but also asks him, what's your name? And then renames him and says, your, your name is going to be Israel. And it's like, well, that, that's yeah. such a strange story. And I remember connecting that at one point when I was thinking on it, I was like, there's got to be some symbolic meaning to all of this because it's just such a strange story. And I connected <laughs> it to, um, in the new Testament, uh, what is it? It says, you know, light has come into the, the the world and darkness has not understood it, I think is the term in, in the book of John. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I think it's chapter one. But um, that same word in the Greek can also mean uh, overcome. So the darkness has not overcome it. The darkness has not understood it. And that verse I was just connected in my mind and I was thinking, like, you know, in some sense, if you have an issue you're trying to figure out, the moment that you understand it is the moment that you overcome it as an obstacle because you grasp yeah. it. And so then I was thinking, I'm like, okay, if I take that principle, what does it mean for Jacob to overcome the angel of the Lord that he's wrestling with? I was like, could this be a metaphor for you know wrestling with Scripture? You know, so you you've got scripture. You're wrestling with it all night. Let's say you know, um, trying to understand it, and then if you do that long enough, there's a point at which God goes, "All right, I'll let you understand it." You know, you've wrestled with it, and now your yeah. eyes are open to the truth. But at the same time, you so saw. I was like, okay, that seems to make sense. I, th- I think there's an argument that so this was all happening, kind of uh, you know, as I'm thinking on it, I was like, this makes sense. I could see this as being a, a, an allegorical you know, interpretation yeah. of this, this thing that I do believe, you know, actually happened, you know, physically happened. And so it's like, okay, so you, there's a sense in which you wrestle with scripture until you understand it, until you overcome it. And there's a sense in which it does, you know, hurt you because you're cutting, you know, you're cutting falsehoods out, right? You know, the, the sword of truth, the spirit of truth, the word of God, um, is a is a sword that divides. It divides between you know bone and marrow, and um, and so okay. Yeah. So then, it, there's a sense in which it does wound you, but it's a good wound. It's getting rid of you know the falsehoods from your life. So there's a wound, but there's also a blessing. You know, if you cling to it, it does give you a blessing. Your know, truth is always a blessing to your life, and then mm-hmm. that also makes sense with. Your, your identity is it's changed. Your name is changed. Uh, you know, Jacob was then changed to the name Israel, which is you know he who wrestles with God. And I think that's even stated yeah. uh, where he says, you know, you've wrestled with God and man, and you have overcome. And so, yeah. it's like so if if the people of God are defined in the Old Testament as Israelites, meaning the people who wrestle with God. And that's the you know a picture that's then brought over into the church you know, who are the remnant you know those who are the people of God um, you know the, are we not to be spiritually Israelites you know people who are the true yeah. Israel the ones who are wrestling with God it's like so if you're wrestling with God and you take that as a um, a personal mandate you take responsibility for that. Well, then you are yeah. being like the Bereans. You are testing the word of God. And then the other thing, too, is, uh, you know, Jacob then has, you know, after the wrestle, 
you know, his, his walk is different. Like I was thinking about that. It's like he physically is now walking differently. And I was thinking mm-hmm. like, you know, for, for however long that occurred, whether it's the rest of his life or part of his life, you know, whatever, if people asked him and said, hey, you know, what happened, man? Why are you walking with a limp? The only answer he can give is because I wrestled with God and he wounded <laughs> me and he blessed me. Uh, and now yeah. I'm walking by faith. You know, it's kind of a symbol of a walk by faith. It's like, so your walk yeah. is going to be different to the world around you. And yet, so, so like mm-hmm. I saw all of that, I was like, man, this, this has got to be, I, I can't help but see this as a, as a metaphor. Um, yeah. And so it's yeah, like, if that, you that do that, well, and you're going to, as you kind of point out, you're going to be, you're going to look different and people aren't going to understand it because they're all following a different pattern. Yeah. <laughs> and so they're going to ask, you yeah. know, or maybe reprimand you for walking differently. Well, and, and there would, uh, th- there's some precedent that would seem for, you know, like what you're theorizing because, uh, there's uh, quite a few other, there's other areas in the Bible where, where God rewards diligence or he rewards people, um, for like for a strong effort. Uh, one example is there when, um, <clears throat> I think it was Elisha. I can't, I can't remember what king he was talking to, but uh, you know, he told him that you're going to smite your enemies, and, and he asked him to hit the ground or whatever, the arrows or whatever, and the guy hit three times. And he was like, you know, you should have hit just, you know, as many times as you could or something like that. You know, then he would have yeah, destroyed them. Yeah, that's right. Now you're only going to, you know, now you're only going to just hurt them. You're not going to destroy them. And uh, you know, we're we're like, you know, God wanted him to put in a real effort into it. Uh, to show you know how much you and and I can understand. I mean that's, that's such a loaded question. If I was in his position, I don't know if I would have done any differently. You know because you're mm-hmm. thinking you don't you don't you don't realize what you're doing. You know that that, that is so you don't realize how much is re- resting on what your action is. But yeah, you know it's like there there's examples like that where you know God wants us to go above and beyond, or you know Jesus saying to go the extra mile when someone is asking. Uh, placed an unreasonable burden on you, you know. Uh, it's just like they, the God, God wants us to do more than it's required of us. Uh, it seems like, and then He rewards that because He says you're, you know, you were, you were faithful uh, to, to, uh, you know, to an extent that was beyond what I required. Um, and even, even with the case of Abraham, you know, uh, He, He rewarded him because He did. Even though it went against everything that made sense, he still brought his son out there, set the whole altar up, put him on top, and was ready to kill him. You know, went to that extent. You know, if he had stopped halfway, what you know, what would the story have been like? You know, what if what if he had gotten all the way out there, gone to where they were supposed to go, and said, "Yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to build the altar though because I don't think I would need to." You know, like like he had to continue to demonstrate that he really was trusting, right up to the very point where he was going to kill his son. You know, mm-hmm. so. Uh, so yeah, it, you know what you're saying makes a lot of sense that that God um, God wants us to push back, you know, and and push back, um, you know, with real effort, <laughs> and then He rewards us for that. So, uh, so yeah, that's, that's really interesting uh, perspective. Yeah, see, I couldn't remember if I had. I, I know I've mentioned that to other people I've talked with in mm-hmm. different conversations. I couldn't remember if I, that had been something that had come up, but I th- I think I had. Um, that that had dawned on me at one point. Um, 
several several years back. I can't remember when, but I remember um, I think it was Ravi Zacharias who had pointed out something I hadn't thought of, which was the fact that before, and I'd have to go back and double double check, but I think it was before God blessed Jacob, he asked me, said, what is your name? And then Jacob said, my name is Jacob. And the angel of the Lord says, you are right in saying your name is Jacob. Or he basically says, like, hey, you're right. Because the last time, uh, at least in the scriptures, and this was the connection that uh, Robbie had made, was the last time that, um, that Jacob had been asked, you know, what is your name by his father, uh, in, the, in that case, he had lied. He had said, I am Esau. And so, yeah. in other words, there was a sense of where it's like, okay, you know, uh, Jacob had to speak the truth this time and tell, you know, who, who are you really? You know, so there was kind of an honesty there that, in other words, he wasn't going to receive yeah. a blessing by lying. <laughs> you know, yeah. something, something connected there, too. I was like, oh, I hadn't thought about that. You know, I hadn't made yeah. that connection. But uh, but yeah, yeah. I, I remember that that because there's so many like there's so many strange things that happen in the Old Testament, and for yeah. whatever reason that one I just kind of was thinking on. I was like, I think there's a, a, a spiritual metaphor here, and you know there's yeah. precedence for that because you know uh, Paul makes the argument about the you know uh, Sarah and Hagar being two different covenants, and uh, you know there's mm. the so he he spiritualizes it. I think that's even the term. Um, or allegorizes. He goes, now this can be interpreted spiritually or allegorically, depending on the translation you have. So I was like, okay, so Paul is is pulling from, you know, p- pulling spiritual truths out of the physical, historical events that happened and then making a point from it. So I was like, I think I'm, I'm comfortable with that. Um, you yeah. know, of course, you have to use discernment and all of that, uh, which I think the Holy Spirit can can guide but you also see, um, like, there's other stuff I started kind of piecing together, and this might be might be a topic for uh, for another podcast. But um, things like, um, oh, it, it gives. A, I think in Second Samuel, there's a chapter where it lists all of uh, David's mighty men. It just kind of gives a list of all of them, and I couldn't help but see, at the very least, uh, these would be like good sermon points. But there was a there's a case of. Uh, one of David's mighty men, who I think like f- stood at a on a bridge um, or a passageway where there were like three hundred enemy soldiers that were coming up against him, and he single handedly fought all of them off. And it says, uh, you know, after he had basically slain all of them and kept them from crossing the the, the bridge, um, it says something like the sword in his hand, like uh, he fought so long and hard that it it either cleaved or clove or whatever the past participle is or whatever the past tense but it yeah. cleaved to his hand in other words it was like it was um you know stuck to his hand and i think that's a, a reference to basically because he was gripping it so hard the muscles mm-hmm. were basically contracted so that even when he tried to let go of it his muscles were basically frozen in place and he couldn't let go of his sword yeah. now I was like, well, man, if that's not a good uh, analogy of how tightly we're supposed to grip the sword of the Spirit, you know, which is the Word of God, it's like if we're using yeah. that as a weapon and we grip it tightly and we wield it well and then you know, fight off our, our spiritual enemies, let's say, um, even to the, the point where we might get tired and want to let it go, it's like at that point it's connected to us. It's attached to us. We can't let it go. Yeah. It clings to us, <laughs> which is, you know, if, if Jesus Christ coming to earth 
and the uh, you know the word of uh, the logos became flesh. It's like if that's not a a pattern of it's like okay, well in the same sense, well in a similar sense because we're not going to become divinity in that in that same way that Jesus is you know divinity, but there is a sense in which truth. Uh, which this goes to your metaphor of the of you know going into a library and you know, here's all these books that are true, but I need to put them in me. You know I need to digest them. I need to you know I, I need to translate this truth into my being, as it were. I yeah. need to I need to follow that pattern of the word becoming flesh. You know it's not meant to just stay in uh, in in text form. You know and that's the spiritual component. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so all, yeah, that's a sure. that's a long tangent, a long-winded way of saying, you know, I think that is that flies in the face of that legalistic spirit that's in a lot of, you know, institutional church groups and it it's it's keeping in step with the spirit and it's pursuing God and doing more than just like you said the requirements that are put forth. You're actually pursuing a relationship with God and he wants that because yeah. he wants a relationship. He doesn't want just rule followers. And so yeah. but yeah, you start doing that, you start asking those questions and wrestling with scripture, uh, there'll be some furrowed brows. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well and and it's like I say it's frustrating because it's one thing if you want to just, you know, come in as, as a disruptor and, and you're there just to ask, you know, foolish and unlearned questions and you're just trying to, you know, make a mess, and you don't really care. Uh, I would understand then if, if people, you know, bodily threw me out of their church. But, but when you feel like, you know, you're you're asking sincere questions, you really want to have answers. And and you like, and for me, it's not even just me. You know, I'm hoping that if I ask this question and we can have a conversation, maybe you know what I have to say will help them. Maybe they got something that can help me. We can, you know, we can both grow together. We can both learn something, or we'll all learn something. You know, whatever. Uh, and yet you always just come up against this brick wall because you ask a question that is outside of our denomination or it's outside of our church or it's outside of our ex- accepted idea about God. And so therefore we just shut it down and say, that's great. That's a nice question, but we're not going to answer it. You know, and I'm like, <laughs> you know, should we have these limitations? What's wrong with just living? It, it might be scarier, but I, but I believe we're supposed to live in question and ask everything. You know, that's what we're supposed to do. Um, and that just doesn't, it doesn't sit well with people, but I, but I don't believe that we're supposed to live comfortably, you know? So, Mm -hmm. um, it's just, uh, but it does, it does alienate you very quickly. (laughs) Doesn't take much. Yeah, (laughs) dude, it doesn't. And that, that's something I've noticed just in this, uh, in a general sense and maybe it's, maybe it's in more places, but at the very least, I think I've said it before. Um, it, it, there's something about this region, and, and I've mentioned it to uh, to other guys that I know, other other you know thinkers and and you know people that I would that I've had more in depth conversations on on biblical topics where we ask you know tough mm-hmm. questions, and they're open to it. Uh, I think it was just uh, maybe a week or so back I was talking with a with a brother in Christ, and he was saying um, I told him I said, dude, there's like this you know like a yes man spirit. You know, where people are just, oh, yeah, yeah, we just, yeah, we agree with this. And I said, it's just kind of here, you know, kind of, again, that legalistic idea. And he goes, oh, yeah. He goes, there's lots of just rule following, and that's it. And I was like, yeah. I was like, I, I just, I'm picking it yeah. up. It just seems to be yeah. everywhere. 
and the people that, and, and not yeah. just in the church groups, like even in, uh, you know, job settings and things like, man, you, you start questioning stuff even from just a genuine uh, curiosity or, or from, you know, hey, maybe we should, admit, I think this makes better sense. What do you think? It's like that just upsets the whole the whole spirit of the group sometimes and the leadership. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So it's it's definitely a reality and there's definitely a spiritual component yeah. behind it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it's just it's it's sad because like I say, I mean I think there's something uh, I mean the Bible makes it very clear that, you know, we're supposed to be iron sharpening iron and learning from each other and everything and and um when when you when that gets shut down by churches you know, it, it's frustrating because you want to be able to have that connection with people, and yet they're they're not willing. Um, and of course, they, you know, then <clears throat> in some cases, I can't say all cases, but in some cases, they twist the knife after they, you know, poke you with it. They twist the knife by implying that you're the one who's spiritually out of order. You're the one who's doing it all wrong, you know, and that uh, you you just came here to make life miserable for us. You wanted to, you know, try to destroy our church or something. And, and now you get attacked instead of them just rejecting you. They also attack you on your way out. You know, that, that you're, you're actually the, the, the problem with the church. If, you know, people weren't like you, then we'd all be good. And I'm like, well, I thought I was bringing something a little bit better, a different perspective. And now I'm actually being accused of doing wrong, but you won't have the conversation to show me where I'm wrong. You just say I'm wrong, you know? Mm-hmm. And, uh, it just, <laughs> that, that, that's what hurts even more because I'm like, okay, so now you're, now you're actually accusing me of doing biblical, you know, doing the biblical thing wrong. I'm doing something that I'm making, you know, I'm, I'm being sinful or something. I'm trying to disrupt the church. And yet you won't, you still won't give me my uh, hearing. You know, you'll just accuse me without letting me have my say. So, um, it's, uh, it's been an experience that I've had a few times, you know, uh, especially more as I've been, you know, going to different church uh, in the last few years. Um, and it's, it's just not, it's not much fun that way. So. Yeah. That, that actually, now that I think of it, that might be a good topic at some point for us to discuss in the future. Just some of the experiences we've had in connection with that. Cause I know there's a lot of, of overlap there, but, uh, yeah. I'll, have to, I'll have to figure out a good title for that. But, but yeah, yeah. that, that's a, that's a whole nother, um, I, that would actually be a good, like, um, a uh, topic to kind of spawn a bunch of other related things connected to it. Cause I, th- I think mm-hmm. that was one of the first things we discussed, um, uh, just, uh, you know, not in podcast form, but, um, just meeting up beforehand when I was talking about wanting to get a podcast started. So mm-hmm. that, that's something I'm going to put down on the list <laughs> for discussion. Yeah. But, uh, um, yeah, well, let me see. We're at, I think we're about at the same amount of time we had, um, Last time, so th- that was a good, decent, decent amount. We're coming up on the about three hours and forty minutes in, so I think we can. We'll go ahead and try and wrap it up just for uh, you know for for having a good like hour and a half because I, I want to say the last time it was about an hour and a half for the first half, an hour and a half for the second. So that's a good yeah. good amount of time. But uh, is there anything that you would like to 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 shout out or um, uh, any any concluding thoughts or whatever, just to kind of wrap things up? Um, we, we covered quite a bit, so. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We did get in quite a few of the questions. I was, I, I feel like those yeah. will still come up in future, uh, future podcasts. I yeah. think we'll, we can still touch yeah. on them, but I was at least glad I was like, I, I knew that there was going to be some kind of a flow that we could get, uh, 
to, to try and connect the dots. So I was, I was happy with how that went. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, um, yeah, I'm sure we'd, we'd be able to circle back to some of that stuff because, uh, like I say, even, even just the topic of Calvinism comes up in so many different, uh, the hard questions you ask about of the Bible. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's kind of unavoidable. It's usually there. So, um, there's always a new way of looking at that. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that that kind of covers everything in general, at least that you know, I was thinking, um, and, uh, <clears throat> yeah, I've had a good time with it. Uh, good conversation. Yeah. Same for my end too. And, and for those who are listening maybe to this one and you haven't heard our, our discussion we had on in podcast form, uh, it's, uh, you know, feel free to check it out. It's entitled a biblical response to, to victim blaming. And we pretty much stayed on that topic, uh, for the full you know, three ish hours that we discussed it. It's in uh, two parts, uh, but you can find it on the same the same podcast. So feel free to check that out, and uh, definitely, Tim. Well, I'll definitely have you back on because um, <laughs> there's so many other conversations that uh, that we can yeah. have on on a ton of different stuff. So that's uh, that's we're, I'm going to have to be more adamant about uh, keeping that on track. <laughs> yeah, so, sure. Yeah, but uh, but yeah, I guess I guess we'll go ahead and uh, and sign it out um, just uh, to wrap things up. So. For all of you who listen, you thank you for listening. This has been the Joshua Greeny Podcast, and you've been listening to a discussion between myself and a good friend of mine named Tim. So hopefully you, you enjoyed the conversation, and we'll tune in next time for, uh, well, the next time Tim's on and anybody else who comes on in the future. So thanks for joining, and uh, have a good one.